Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, you are listening to a Rad Legend Broadcasting premiere podcast, Damn You Hollywood. And here's your host, Robert Winfrey. Yay! Hello, everyone. I hope you're all having a wonderful day as we get this particular episode going. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, tonight we are talking about Candyman, and this isn't the only time I'm going to be talking about this particular film today. I'm going to be hosting a roundtable discussion uh, later this evening about it with four other people. Sorry, my yeah, camera, we had, we had my a lot camera of froze there, and uh, I'm now signed out of Skype, so hopefully that won't happen again. Um, we had a lot of interest in this one, and that happens occasionally, where like everybody just wants to be a part of the review. And I know some people do like the six-person panel. You know, their whole screen fills up with these Brady boxes. Like if you're watching this on the video, there's two of us. And there's two Brady boxes. People like to have like six people on a panel. And what I have discovered, having been a guest on one of those, and <clears throat> having four or five people on these is that nobody gets to talk as much as they want and everyone gets frustrated. So what you're gonna get now is your standard Damn You Hollywood deep dive breakdown of Candyman 2021. And then tonight, with all of the other people who had an interest in talking about it, Robert will conduct a round table where we won't have to um, stifle anyone because we gotta get to the money and we gotta get to the, criti <coughs> the critical review, stuff like that. People can just have kind of a nice diner conversation over a plate of disco fries and talk about this movie and how they feel about it and whatever else. So you get two different kinds of takes on a Candyman review, a roundtable discussion and a deep dive uh, craft review. So let's get to the deep dive craft review. How about that? You deep dive craft review and guy you. Yeah, I wanted to just kind of mention this beforehand. Nothing that I'm about to say should reflect negatively on anyone else I podcast with. I deeply enjoy... Every individual, uh, not every conversation we always have, but that's the nature of human interaction. We don't always, we sometimes have weird discussions, sometimes much more lucrative discussion, uh, lucrative not in the financial sense, but in the enriching sense. Mark said to me, not too long after he'd seen this, you know, we're going to break it down this way. It's going to be you and me, and then we're going to do everybody else. And I, then I saw the movie. <laughs> And my immediate response to him was, boy, I'm glad we're doing that because there's certain conversations that you can kind of only have with the right people that you have the right rapport with. And boy, yeah. is this one of those. Yeah, let, let's let's get into it, Robert. Just real quick. Um, did You've seen the original Candyman. Mm -hmm. Any affection towards it? Where does it, oh, yeah. where does it land in, in the pantheon of horror movies towards the bottom, the middle, the top for you? towards the top i don't think it i haven't seen it in a while i might be do a revisit but i haven't 
it doesn't quite crack the very top. Like the very top of horror is stuff like Silence of the Lambs, and I will die on that hill that it's a horror movie. Anybody out there? You know, The Exorcist, uh, first two Hellraiser movies. Like you get this very, you get you get the very top. I don't think it quite cracks the very top, but it's certainly upper echelon like it might not make the mount rushmore of horror movies mm -hmm. but it's top you know 10 15 <clears> easy <throat> pretty easily i mean i've mentioned this before on other podcasts or in other writings and i'll say it again here if you wanted to create in a lab the perfect actor for the horror genre you'd get tony todd like he's he definitely has a presence he's a large man and his screen presence is even bigger He's able to convey malice and menace very easily. Uh, he can also be the kind of intoxicating, uh, enticing presence. His voice is perfect, whether that's kind of deliberately lulling you into a quote-unquote false sense of security or, again, menacingly yelling at you. Like, there's, there's so much that he can do. And to top I that off, he's a terrific actor in the traditional acting sense. I'm fascinated by I'm fascinated by your interest in this movie because, <clears throat> you know, as we've talked about over the years and years and years, I have a and I'm going to say this as seriously as I can without doing shtick. I have a deep abiding interest in Afrocentric urban uh, stories. You know, I we, we joke we jokingly talk about my love of the wire, but you know, I've also talked about like Watchmen. I think like the only thing that was deeply like Afrocentric in recent years that I didn't watch, and it was probably because it was part of the horror genre. And I need to go back and revisit. It's something you reviewed with Alexis, and that was Lovecraft Country. But I, like, for the record, I think you'd probably enjoy <clears throat> most of Lovecraft. It's not. A, it is not nearly as traditionally horror centric as you might assume. Sure. Its title. <clears throat> but I mean, like, just getting out of the horror genre in, in a general sense. I'm um, like, I just finished watching Godfather of Harlem. These are all things that I enjoy. You have watched these things, and some of these things you like because the craft is well done. Um, they, they speak to you on some level uh, and other things you've dismissed. Um, you don't necessarily, because it's not the Afrocentrism or the urbanness of the story that's attracting you. There's something else to it. So I'm really kind of surprised that you like Candyman as much as you do, but I'm guessing it's not for the af that aforementioned reason that there's other things going on with you that draw you to this movie, draw you to this franchise, I should say. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> uh first of all no the i have no affection for the <clears throat> franchise um, mm -hmm. because well the less said about farewell to the flesh and day of the dead the better mm -hmm. for those who want a more long-form discussion of that you can listen to the long road to ruin with mark and sean where they more or less succinctly break down the myriad number of problems with those two films as succinctly as we could so I, I don't have a big affection for the franchise at large. Um, but the first movie is just so well made. Mm -hmm. You get good scares. It's not it's not schlocky. It never relies on cheap cinema tricks. Right. You know, uh, it's bookended by some incredibly strong performances by Tony Todd and Virginia Madsen. I was going to say, the tension and the the horror uh, aesthetic comes more organically in the first yeah. in the first Candyman. It's not 
you know, it's not every, they're not on a clock where every 15 minutes something has to jump out of the, out of the corner and yell boogie, boogie, boogie at you, which is one of our big complaints about something like Stephen King's It was, um, especially the second one. Yeah, it's, uh, more so the second one for sure. Mm -hmm. And I, that will always speak to me, if nothing else, on a craft level. Like, if nothing else, the, the, the attention that goes into that kind of filmmaking will always resonate because that's good film craft. Uh, you know, I may not be necessarily attracted to, you know, overly urban stories in general, or, uh, you mentioned Afrocentro ones, uh, that's true, but I'm not off put by them either as a mm -hmm. matter of, as a matter of course, if you're, if your pitch to me is, you know, this is about the black experience in Detroit in the 1970s, that's, you might as well have put tofu in front of me it, 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 <laughs> and I, I don't mean that as a negative you know tofu is all about what you put around it, it it's a sponge right. for flavor <clears throat> using you know, making a story about the black experience in detroit in the 1970s okay like what but, a, what's, well, but what's what else? there yeah. who's in it what do you mean by the black experience yeah. it, you know you know, is it the malaise of the 70s in general and how it affected black people? Is mm. it drugs? Is it this? Is it that? Is it Motown? That's what you're saying. Yeah. And, you know, who's the director? Who are the primary actors? Who wrote it? Mm. Like, there's so much more. Any story is so much more than its setting and its point of view. Like, those are important because lacking them will just destroy anything. And we'll get to that momentarily. Yes, we will. <laughs> <laughs> but. If that's all you have going for you, you have a poor story. I, I don't know what else, I don't know how else to phrase that. And the first Candyman movie does a, it maximizes its setting in some very real ways. My only real problem with the first Candyman, and I said this on the Long Road to Room, but if you haven't listened to it, because um, you only listen to Damn You Hollywood or whatever, you only care about what we think of this movie. And this is the reason why I'm bringing it up, and this will transition us into the movie itself. Yeah. <laughs> the, the first movie doesn't necessarily take a position on the things that it's talking about. It kind of just presents them. It says, we could be talking about collective trauma and integrational, uh, intergenerational trauma in the Black community and how collective experiences has produced these mass coping mechanisms that lead to hallucin mass hallucinations or whatever. You know, it incorporates the oral storytelling technique of uh, of uh, the Afrocentric experience it says, okay, that could be what we're doing here, but we could also be doing supernatural. There's a ghost who, because of uh, racial issues and revenge and everything has come back to haunt this community and this white woman has stuck her foot in it. It could be that too. And we're not going to say which one it is. It's kind of up to you to figure, well, hang on. It's, it's kind of up to you to figure it out. And you take from the movie what you will, which I didn't love about that. I kind of wish it had taken a strong uh, point of view on which of one of these it was and just leaned into it more. It kind of goes, we're going to leave it ambivalent. because, And it almost says that, like, we're going to leave this ambivalent because this is horror. And there's a there's there's a inherent fright that comes with not knowing what something is. OK, I get that. That is my problem with the new Candyman is that. It starts telling you one thing, and then it's starting to tell you another. It takes a position on nothing, and then in the end, the one strong thing it does take a position on had nothing to do with the rest of the movie. 
It was like, we don't have an end for this. Okay, well, what's popular right now? Everyone hates cops. Great. Run with that. Go ahead and we'll, we'll get final piece there and, and and then we'll we'll drift into this. Well, it's somewhat apropos that you discuss horror adjacent films that leave elements of their of what's going on a bit ambiguous, yeah, considering my t-shirt here. For those of you who are using <laughs> the audio only version, I am wearing a Pan's Labyrinth design t-shirt. I'm wearing Kamala the Ugandan headhunter. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, if that doesn't just say it all, does it? Uh, I'm not trolling. No, not me. Uh, so I, I I bring that up just because I think Pan's Labyrinth might be the gold standard for... What is this? You've not seen Pan's Labyrinth? Yeah, I did. I did we did a whole long oh, time. Yes. Sorry, sorry, sorry. You, you're correct. Like, I misunderstood what you meant there. Yeah, it is kind of the gold standard for... Is this supernatural? Is this purely mundane? And this is a coping mechanism, and just leaving that wholly up to the audience's interpretation. That's the best way you can possibly do it. And you know, the first Candyman movie, I think it also muddies the waters just a touch because it talks. It also talks about folklore and right. how, which is a fascinating topic in and of itself. If you're not listening to the lore podcast, which deal, delves heavily into that, I recommend you do so. And we also because we tend to ascribe folklore as being a thing of the past and a mm -hmm. thing of more rural settings. So talking about it in an, in an urban setting, sort of irrespective of the racial element, just talking right. about how do folk legends develop in densely populated sure. urban areas is a different, uh, I love, different take on it. I love to have discussions and hear lectures on the the continued presence in modern times of uh ancient African oral traditions, you know, the, the subject of storytelling, because it informs so much of popular African-American culture right now. A lot of the African oral tradition of older times found its way into like hip hop yeah, and, you know, things like that. And I, and I think those things are fascinating. Yeah. Uh, you kind of ditto for like uh, Native Americans. They have mm -hmm. a very, very deep or tradition of oral stories of oral storytelling. And uh, the way that manifests itself in some of the other artistic projects that you know, members of that community uh, tend to engage in is uh, certainly a very interesting topic as well. And all that is to say <laughs> <laughs> how that you know, that relates to this movie in the sense that uh, I don't want to get too much into my review, but. I I actually I do sl I think you're largely correct in that this movie doesn't take a strong position for a lot of its it seems to believe that its position and righteousness is so self-evident it doesn't actually have to go too far into it right with a handful of exceptions at which point they must beat you about the head and shoulders with the point of view of the of yeah. the creative team it's such a whiplash moment from acts 1 and 2 to act 3 that you're almost in a completely different movie. Um, when, it, you know, Jason Teasley, who will be on the, uh, the the round table tonight, said, oh, this movie was like an eight out of 10. And he asked me what I thought of it. And I said, I like two thirds of it because the two thirds that were, were consistent within its own universe, I thought were interesting. I have some quibbles here and there, but for the most part, I was with the movie. And then, and then it just takes that turn. And you're like, look, I'm not against you doing a scry, you know, a, um, 
a screed against institutional racism and law enforcement and the uh, proportional, out of proportional, however, whichever way you want to go down, uh, reaction of the black community to said institutional racism. Um, that's fine, but that has to then be your movie. You can't, <laughs> you can't do two thirds one thing and then be like, oh, by the way, Black Lives Matter. You're right, but what? The, wait, <laughs> you know, how did we get here? And, yeah, that's I... it. and it is distinctly different from the first one because the first one, while ambivalent and something I didn't love about it uh, towards the end, was at least consistent the whole way through. I thought the ending to the first Candyman was silly, and I talked about that fairly at length, but at least it wasn't a completely different movie. Do your last bit here, and then let's let's get to the plot synopsis. I'm a little bit with you. I think I draw a slightly different distinction about the last what you consider the last third of the movie. Uh, Which one are we talking about? Candyman 92 or 2021? This one. Okay. You want to call the ending of the 92 version a touch silly. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you too much. I thought it, I personally, I thought it worked a little bit better than you did, but that's mm -hmm. splitting hairs, you know? Okay. This one, I don't even necessarily consider the third act to be much of a letdown. It's more just the finale sequence. Okay. Fair enough. Now, and again, that's me versus you. So I'm about like, you ask me how, if you do chop this movie up into tenths, mm -hmm. you know, how much of this movie did I enjoy? Probably eight tenths of it. Yeah, time. I'm actually closer to you than you think. Okay, go ahead and start your plot synopsis here. All righty. So the plot of this thing should sound familiar if you've seen any of the other Candyman movies. <laughs> uh, we primarily follow, but we actually open with a flashback to... Uh, well, like the 80s Chicago, 80s in Cabrini Green, where a character who we'll meet again later as a small child is somewhat frightened by a man who looks very much like the traditional Candyman with his uh, prosthetic hook hand and a <laughs> yeah, the coat he's wearing, literally walks out of a hole in the wall to offer him candy. This small child, as one might do, is terrified. And screams, and there's some police officers outside who are looking for this guy in particular anyway, and uh, they come down, and they beat this poor man to death, and it turns out he wasn't guilty of what they were looking, uh, what they were investigating anyway. And some of that comes out a bit more later, but that's our opening sequence to remove all subtlety and subtext from this thing. <laughs> Sorry, that's the last thing I'm going to say as I go through this. Uh, we primarily follow Anthony McCoy. He is a painter, primarily some other kind of artist, uh, visual artist, living in Chicago with his girlfriend, Brianna. Uh, and we meet Brianna's brother, Troy, and his uh, boyfriend, whose name I forget, but he also doesn't actually matter all that much. So neither, that's neither here nor there. Troy kind of first introduces the Candyman story ad by, adjacently by telling a fictionalized version of the story of Helen Lyle, who was Virginia Madsen in the first Candyman movie in 1992, which I thought was a nice little callback in how her story became its own, uh, you know, kind of a legend in its own right. Uh, I, I very, actually very much enjoyed that. But as, it as her kind of history and what she did in Cabrini Green, absent the discussion of Candyman, props up, Anthony, who's been dealing with a little bit of artist block, heads down to Cabrini Green to find inspiration for what he wants to do next because his work is stagnating and not actually coming up. And there's a big 
gallery showing that he's going to be a part of and yada, yada, yada. Uh, he goes around and he gets stung by a bee. Which is not actually a bee, but I'll save the discussion of etymology. Uh, he's just taking pictures. He goes about this you know, mostly condemned area that's about to be torn down and rebuilt kind of thing. And he encounters uh, this character of William Burke, who was the small child in the opening segment. Burke relays the story that happened to him and tells him the slightly more specific uh, thing that if you say Candyman into a mirror five times, the spirit will appear and kill people because that's what that's how the legend goes. And that's what this thing does. So Anthony develops a art piece, not not just a painting, but a, another like another nice kind of callback to the original film. He has a medicine cabinet that's covered with mirrors, and then you know, part of the uh, display that you get uh, when you enter these things is uh, you know, the artist's, uh, the artist's uh, point of view, their perspective, their little introduction to their piece, and he includes the Candyman Urban Legend. You're supposed to open the cabinet, and he has a handful of his paintings displayed in there. He talks with a critic about this, and I, I bring this up specifically because he tells this art critic... A little bit about his thought process. I was trying to create a a singular moment that contempt that kind of unifies all the past and present trauma of the black experience into a singular artistic moment. And I just thought it was a really bold choice by the writers and the director to just have a character state their own point of view here. We're not even talking foreshadowing. Like <laughs> this is just, hey, what are we going to do with this? Well, what if we in needlessly complicated art talk per usual try to distill the collective suffering of a community and a people down to a singular artistic moment in time reaching back to its history and origin and stretching all the way up to the contemporary moment and it's all focalized just right here and yeah just that was a bold choice really <laughs> <laughs> kind of a bold choice there uh the critic is not terribly impressed with all of, with this particular art display and really why would you be um Anthony gets a little bit drunk and says a few things you're not supposed to say. And the, the relevant part here is there's a, there's a teenage girl who's uh, attending this exhibit and she becomes important in a minute or two. Um, Anthony's bee sting has, starts, has started to have some really gnarly effects on his hand as this movie continues. But Anthony continues to become a little bit obsessed with the Candyman legend and what he's trying and trying to write this thing out. Um, the art gallery director and one of his interns that he's trying to sleep with say Candyman five times into the art gallery piece. The spirit of Candyman appears, violently murders them. Uh, he winds up interviewed by that same art critic. She, uh, in one of the, I'll save talking about the sequence late until later, but I really liked the entire that entire sequence, uh, the way it was filmed and whatnot. Uh, she winds up murdered by the spirit. Uh, there's a bit more of this. It, things dry out a bit. Anthony gets more and more unstable. Brianna leaves him, uh, which is the sanest thing anyone does in this movie. Uh, she winds up trying. Uh, she winds up talking with him later about some. But he. Anthony goes back to Burke and they talk a little bit more. Burke uh, somewhat downplays the supernatural element of the Candyman myth uh, initially. 
uh, Anthony goes to the hospital because his arm is kind of falling off at this point. <laughs> and while there, he discovers he was born in this hospital, not the hospital his mother told him he was born in. And this is somehow a giant revelation that causes him to go speak to her for the first time in quite some time where we meet uh, an actress from the original movie who tells him the truth that he was actually born here, partially raising Cabrini Green. And don't you understand, you were that baby from the myth and the, from the story in the beginning that Helen Lyle saved from the bonfire after the Candyman spirit took you away. And... Uh, Yergly? Yeah. Um, this is where those... This is where things take a little bit of a left turn. <laughs> um, Brianna goes to the laundromat uh, to try and talk with Burke because she uh, she remembers that Anthony had mentioned him. She does one of the other smart... This is the smartest woman in horror history, almost. She leaves the crazy guy once he starts going crazy. Then when she's looking through uh, this laundromat for the proprietor, she opens the door to the basement... And we get this wonderful interior shot as the door opens. We get the long staircase. She goes, uh-uh, closes the door. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Like, congratulations. Seriously good decision-making for the most part here. <laughs> uh, but Burke abducts her, takes her to the church in the uh, that's kind of been condemned to Cabrini Green. Anthony is mostly transformed at this point, And I do want to praise the physical, the, the mix of physical and whatever... Uh, computer-generated imagery they did on him did a great job. That is some really quality body horror stuff going on there. Uh, he cuts off Anthony's hand and reapplies the hook because he wants the myth of Candyman to be reborn. His bit of of justification here is utter nonsense. I barely remember how he yeah, got We'll, we'll talk about it. Be. We'll talk about it. He just was like, it, we need to have Candyman. So he's Candyman. Candyman. Go. Yeah, like that. that's kind of where we arrive here. So we get a bit of a chase sequence. Um, Brianna is able to kill Burke. And as she and Anthony are kind of holed up waiting for the... Uh, oh, sorry, I meant to mention Burke called the cops uh, because he needs an audience of witness, witnesses, etc. So as they're in this little you know apartment that's been condemned and is covered in graffiti, she's hoping that uh, Brianna is like, okay, the you know the police arrive, and at this point, I wanted to throw something at the screen because I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> the, this whole finale reeks of Jordan Peele's writing, and not in a good way. Um, the cops show up and they shoot Anthony, uh, and she gets you know she gets handcuffed and put in the back of a car, and one of the police. Uh, one of the police officers, uh, I believe one of the detectives, given how he's dressed, talks with her and goes, well, we can tell this story two different ways. Either you know, the officer was justified in firing his, in discharging his firearm at this clearly incapacitated man laying prone on the ground, or you were his accomplice, and she looks into the rearview mirror and summons Candyman, who with righteous fury slaughters the police officer's we get a really awkward transition to CGI to digitally de-aged Tony Todd's face. And I want to yell about that choice. <laughs> you don't need to, you do not need to digitally de-age that man. One, he still looks quite good. Two, him being older and a little bit more grizzled doesn't detract from this 
moment the, the story at all uh he uh he takes the appearance of uh, daniel robitaille who's the original Candyman, and tells her to tell everyone because the Candyman is also something of i completely skipped an entire sequence and i'll get to it in a minute uh, when we talk about the craft but she tells her to tell everyone that i don't know the Candyman is some kind of avenging angel now yay god help us all uh and over the credits, we get, if you saw one of the, uh, I think one of the first trailers for this movie was the kind of shadow puppet mm-hmm. uh, theater. That trailer is essentially what plays over the end credits. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you can just watch it there. Uh, movie ends and, I don't know, lobster? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the good, the bad, and the ugly here. Please. <clears throat> when the movie was dealing with the movie, the, one of the things that the movie speaks to is gentrification. How, and I, I need to kind of spell this out, and this is why it's just Robert and I right now, because yeah. there's a lot to talk about here. There's a lot of social politicking that needs to be discussed. This movie is laden with it. Um, and you can't talk about it without, you can't talk about the craft without talking about that stuff. And if you have 800 people, you'll never get through this discussion. Having said that, um, we create conditions in this country where certain segments of the population cannot achieve the American dream for, for the most part. And then uh, someone comes along and says, well, we should not leave these people with uh, no devices, no, no ability to care for themselves. And so we create systems and we create uh, programs and we create physical structures to help these people maintain some of them. In some cases they do well. And in other cases, other parts of society fall apart and those particular areas, of course, I'm talking about projects, uh, f- fall apart with it and create a kind of a culture of its own. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, for decades, this place that was a nice idea in the beginning, but has turned into hell on earth for the people that live there and everyone around it, uh, we need to get rid of it. <laughs> we need to just strike it from the planet, uh, nuke it from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. And then we'll, inv- we'll invite businesses uh, to come in and people with money will follow those businesses and we will create a beautiful community out of this wreck. And what happens there is that the people living there still, you know, still trying to make a go of it are pushed out because they can no longer afford to live there. Essentially, that is the stupid way to explain gentrification. Yeah, that's a pretty stupid way to explain gentrification. <laughs> um, but... That's what the movie is talking about. And the movie's position on gentrification is that it's not great. Um, uh, which I, I, I mm. here's my problem with the gentrification argument in the movie or in general, both. Okay. Are we really going to pretend that the movie's position on this is all that different from the general position on gentrification? I don't know how many people are thinking about it on, on a okay, regular basis. Uh, sure. But you know what I mean, right? Like if you talk, if you get people talking about gentrification, how many of them are going to adopt a position that is all that different from the one this movie espouses? Mm-hmm. Well, look, here the movie's position is that we haven't actually dealt with the problem of poverty. And let's and, and let's limit the discussion here so that we can okay. get through this without going nine hours into the you know the, the hundred year history of black people in America. Um poor well, black people. <laughs> I mean, to, look, I only bring that up because gentrification has affected communities other than the black community. Right, uh, but that's not what this movie is talking about. I, I know. 
And I, my other issue with the, my very briefly, my issue with the gentrification argument and part of it, because part of this is expressed in the film. What's your realistic solution? Because if you don't gentrify it, then it just continues to ghettofy. Right. I mean, look, that that that, that is a whole. I'm aware that's debate a debate we could be having. I'm I aware that I'm aware that's a very large discussion. Yeah, that please don't drop that particular boulder and, in the pond we're dealing with. Well, and there's also, and this bothers me a little bit about the discussion. The critic mm -hmm. in question. The she brings critic? up, yeah, the art critic. Mm -hmm. One of her critiques is that you know you people come into these recently gentrified to the areas that are about to be gentrified and you're part of the reason it gentrifies and he gets a little bit like what do you mean you people and she gives the only she gives the correct answer it's the artists right right artists look for especially you know the starving artist places to live yeah which are frequently these kind of and then assuming any of them take off or assuming any of them are able to influence the culture in the in the area so that it stops being quite so crime-ridden quite so violent <clears throat> it raises the value of the area mm -hmm. and that's kind of how that's kind of how it's supposed to be the better right. an area is the more valuable it is okay. so without getting into a, a a debate over this yeah the movie's sort of internal debate is okay we're not saying increasing property values and the general value of an area is necessarily a bad thing but what do you do with the people who can no longer afford to live there there are no there are no positive solutions for the people who can no longer afford to live in the place you've just increased the value of. And this isn't, this is sort of a revolving problem. And yeah. the movie looks at that. It talks about it. It doesn't, it doesn't say focus on it too much because it's got to get to the horror. So, but I like the fact that it at least brought it up. There's a discussion about it. Um, movies like this, unfortunately, when they're not necessarily about that, that social, issue in particular unfortunately don't handle it in the most deft ways and this one doesn't um because they don't have time to they can just sort of say thing thing exists we're acknowledging thing here's two sides of thing issue and then they go okay we got to move on with the story and i and i accept that i just i got to call it out though and say hey don't think hey smarty pants who worked on this movie don't get too proud of yourself you didn't handle it all that well it you just i think you handled it you handled it as well as you could have given the subject matter you're dealing with in in the genre you chose to put it into. It almost feels like there were three primary writers on this. Mm -hmm. You had uh, the director, Nia DaCosta. You had Jordan Peele. And uh, who was the other guy? Um, guy? Wynn Rosefeld? Okay. Rosenfeld, excuse me. Um, who is... Who else is he... Uh, it almost feels like each of those three had a specific thing they wanted to talk about. Yeah. And they didn't, they had and some difficulty coalescing those things. Yeah. Like somebody wanted, one of the three of them wanted to talk about gentrification. And so there's a bit about it. One of them wanted to talk about police brutality. Right. So there's a bit of that. And then somebody wanted, somebody actually wanted to make a horror movie. So. <laughs> yeah. And I, and it never, I don't, I think some of the stuff they're trying to talk about it was it, it feels like an anthology series encapsulated into one 90 bit. minute in, into one like two 90 minute to two hour movie. How long is this actually? Um, it was 90 minutes. 90, okay. So 91. yeah, it almost, it almost felt like 
like an anthology TV show that was that was done in like three episodes. Like it's it's the movie suffers, I think, from a smooth narrative flow. Yeah. Not that it doesn't have a distinctive point A to point B, but it's almost like three separate episodes. Um, and and like I said, yeah, one is the sort of social story about what happens to communities that are gentrified that were formerly uh, poor projects. And then the second part of it is, um, you know, talks about his sort of, so we have Anthony who is got well, a case I, of like writer's middle, block, essentially. The, the middle part is more like the collective trauma, right? Yeah, there's then, there's that. But I think there's, like I said, the, the, the second part of this movie was probably the most interesting because it's his descent into madness. Yeah. It starts from a place of I'm, uh, I'm having difficulty coming, you know, I'm not inspired. And so he seeks inspiration and he hears this story and the story gives him inspiration. And, th and, and then his first roadblock in that is that somebody comes and tells him, eh, your thing's not all that interesting. And he's like, well, I'm going to make it interesting then. And he descends further into it. And then here's where, and this just might be me, but like he gets stung by the bee and you're, you're meant to believe that this bee stinging is essential in his transformation into this otherworldly, um, ghostly, revenge-seeking being that is the Candyman. And then the movie does uh, does this weird switch, which I was kind of with and I thought was interesting. You have Burke, and Burke is sort of the keeper of the story. You know, so in the first Candyman trilogy, the whole thing is, don't, don't let people forget about me. My strength is in my power that people know that I exist and are afraid of me. It's kind of like Freddy. And and this one, they started to go in a different direction. And then Burke's like, no, 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 no. This is still about making sure this oral, th this oral story, this oral myth is perpetuated. And people have forgotten about it. They, they, they've sort of paved over it. Um, you know, they've thrown this, this goes, this also kind of goes into the gentrification thing. They've thrown this pretty sheen of paint over this thing. And the Candyman is dead and forgotten. And he's like, we can never forget this. This represents so many different things to the black experience. I am, and I must make sure it perpetuates. And so he sees Anthony, who's kind of dipping his toe into it. They're like, you make the perfect patsy to project this on and to keep this going. And so it's an interesting thing that the movie does. And I'm not, and, and then, and here's the thing I could, I could kind of see in the writing process, them going, one side is Burke having to perpetuate the myth and making Anthony into the Candyman. The other side is it's entirely the uh, the coming back of this vengeful spirit, and it's it's entirely supernatural. Which one is it? And then the and then the audience will struggle with that, and that will be part of the intrinsic fear going on. I don't know what this is. I'm afraid. Okay, I'm kind of with you there. Um, and that's and they and so. The whole middle piece of this is Anthony's descent into madness. And, you know, is he becoming a ghost or is he being made into something else through uh, through physical forces? Which brings me to the bee sting, and I wanted to get your opinion on this. So you're led to believe that this bee sting is part of what makes his transformation possible, except like, and it's, it kind of seems like a nitpicky point, but what were the nature of these bees then? And how did they get there? And if it, if it's not supernatural, if the, if the bees are not part of the supernaturalness of this phenomena, and they're just bees, how did the bees make him fall apart the way they did? Uh, the the bee is part of the supernatural issue. Like, you see how it gets muddied. It it really does. Like, 
Because if the bees are part of the supernaturalist and this is a supernatural phenomena, then what is all this hoodabaga about Burke needing to needing to be a part of the perpetuation of the myth of the uh, uh, of the traumatic experience? And that's what I mean by like the movie yeah. just doesn't take a position on anything outside of some of the social issues. Gentrification, bad cops, bad. Okay, good for you. Um, but like, as far as the thematic elements of the movie go, just in terms of the horror, it's not taking any strong positions. It's like, it's kind of like a buffet table. Here's some, uh, some of this, and here's some of this, and here's some of this, and take what you want, leave the rest. We're not definitively saying that this is a cohesive meal. It's a display of things. You take what you want from it, which I don't think is particularly strong filmmaking. No, it. I, I'm with you. That's one of the... I was with his transformation being wholly supernatural, right? He is, he was, he was this, he was this kid, this baby who was touched by the spirit of the Candyman, And when he set foot back near Candyman's domain in Cabrini Green, the, you know, the, the spirit was able to infect him via that bee sting. Like I'm right. with you there. It then does make Burke's sudden heel turn a little <laughs> bit out of left field. Yeah, I don't know why we need Burke after the initial conversation, you know, expositing uh, the history of the, the Candyman. The first two, like, the first two conversations with Burke, I think, are good. No, that's fine, and I'm not arguing that. His whole thing in the church, I, I'm saying, oh, yeah. isn't yeah, necessary. Yeah. Like, w once we get to him you know, hacksawing Anthony's hand off, like, we've... Right. This, none of this makes sense anymore. Right, but the, and that's what I'm okay. Thank you. That that's what I'm kind of so focused on is all this time. It's Anthony's going crazy. He's descending into madness and he's transforming into the supernatural revenge ghost. Great, great story. I love it so far. But then Burke is like, no, no, no. It's me. It was me, Austin. It was me the whole time. And I, you know, I need the Candyman to exist. It's like, well, what fucking one is it? What are we doing here? Yeah, it, that's uh... because that... then that's not even consistent through the rest of the act. No, the rest it, of the third act goes into this other, wholly other direction. Yeah, it, it is a giant weakness in this film that it ends. Like, this movie is a great uh, gymnastics routine <laughs> that you face plant at the end and, like, become a paraplegic. Like, it's that bad. <laughs> this movie's ending is so bad, it, like, act, like, I think back on the rest of the movie and it actually makes it worse. So... I, I will finish saying the, the good things about it. I enjoyed the social commentary for what it was. Um, the acting in this is pretty stellar. Um, I can't remember the actor's name. Um, Yaya, Yaya Abdul-Mateen. Uh, he's an extremely good actor. Um, his girlfriend, who is played by Tiana Paris, uh, she's probably one of the best parts of this movie. Both Everyone gives, I think, a stellar performance. Um, from an aesthetic point of view, in terms of principal photography, I think the movie is shot very interestingly and very well. Um, I'm not going to speak to CGI. That's more your department. But nothing took me out of the movie. Um, not until the end. <laughs> so good things about it. For the most part, social commentary, absolutely performances, principal photography was consistent and interesting. Those are all things that are good about this. Um, what's bad is what we've been saying is that it's muddled and there's no clear perspective once we start getting into the meat of this thing. Um, so we put this off long enough, but this is something you and I definitely wanted to talk about. So uh, before hang we hang on before we, I would say before we do do your good and bad, and then let's you and me talk about this third act. Um, 
<clears throat> this is a movie that wears some of its influences on its sleeve, which I don't mm-hmm. disagree. I, I, I kind of like that, actually, about directors. Um, I'm with you on the acting. There's not a bad performance to be had here. The... I mentioned this before. The sequence where Anthony goes to be interviewed by the art critic because she's writing mm-hmm. a larger story after the gallery owner and his uh, intern are murdered. That sequence from him go from him arriving at her apartment building until he leaves and she's killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, I got I got pretty serious uh, Kubrick vibes. The way it's shot, yeah. the, the the colors that are used, the shapes that are used, very mm-hmm. very Kubrick, and me- meant as a compliment. Yeah, that that felt like it was influenced by The Shining. Uh, sure. There's there's other sequences, some in the gallery, uh, in both both the gallery sequences, uh, both the one that uh, Brianna is one of the like owners of, and then she goes to visit a, a, a museum. Mm-hmm. I got uh, I got very Dario Argento vibes from some of that, which not a name you might be familiar with, but uh, again, just another one of those things that kind of hit me. Uh, the writing of this felt. Um, this might seem odd considering what I'm about to say, but there's a very Lovecraftian influence in the second half, uh, mm-hmm. the, in the in the middle act. The uh, the sensitive artistic type descending into madness, and we get a bit of like the atavism that's going on here. You know, you were destined for this, and it has been a curse on our family for generations. That's a, that's another thing that Lovecraft explores in some of his work. And it it all never quite fully har- harmonizes. But a lot of the individual sequences are really, really good. There are some great kills. Uh, there's some... <clears throat> that's I, actually one of my issues with this movie is I didn't think it was particularly scary. And I scare easily. So that's <laughs> coming from me. Well, I, I think there are graphic images. And I think there's definitely some great use of tension, especially the bathroom scene with the girls. Yeah, but I want to I, I talk about that specifically. But I don't... I was not... Let me, let's put it this way. There are some horror movies that I've watched recently for the purposes of this show where I've had to look away from the screen be- because I could not handle the tension building up and then the p- potentially gross thing that was about to be unveiled. Um, I may have looked away from the screen once or twice during this, but I wasn't necessarily like frightened uh, throughout this. And I actually think that works against the movie considering it's a I'm, horror movie. I'm with you there. There's a, there are any of the sequences of violence in this movie. Mm-hmm. They're not so much scary as they are interesting. Okay. Like you are, it, uh, and part of that is the uh, the filmmaking trick of having to look off center. Mm. There's a lot of stuff in this movie that happens, you know, in the back, in reflective surfaces in the background. Right. And that's where, and which is a fine, I say trick. It's not a not in a pejorative sense. That's a fine thing to do in a horror movie. You make people look off center. It, it makes things. If someone doesn't see it specifically, they kind of see it peripherally and it just kind of adds to the sort of eerie sensation and if you are looking for it then you can you know be yeah for looking for it. horror should absolutely play with perspective you should never have a flat angle or a a flat um photography in your horror movie everything should be sort of kaleidoscope and off-centered and tilted and whatnot unless you are very very good about doing found footage from fixed camera positions uh, yeah well but Again, barring that, like barring the first two Paranormal Activity movies, you, I agree with you. You should be, you should always play around with stuff like that. Um, so we get some interesting. I'm with you in that. There's a bit of tension building in certain sequences. We have, when I say we have some decent kills, 
I'm, I don't think I'm, I, I agree with you. I don't think they're actually all that scary, but yeah. not every, I think the lack of scares is a problem in this movie. Mm-hmm. Not every kill has to be scary to be effective to add to the overall presentation of the film. I think um, like the, the art scene, the very first kill we get is the art gallery kill. Yeah. And that's the shitty art gallery guy and his teenage girlfriend. And it's one of those where like you're rooting for them to be killed because they're shitty people. That's you a know? real, that is a real problem I have with this movie. Um, number one, number two, I'm okay with it appearing supernatural because depending on where the movie goes next, if you don't know, um, that could have been supernatural. That could have been just perspective. And then you find out later there was really a guy. He was really attacking them. Blah, 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 blah. You know, whatever, whatever, wherever you're going with this movie, whatever it is you're trying to say with this Candyman thing, I'm okay with the way it was presented initially because then you can always go back and say, ah, but here's what really happened. Or it is how it was presented. It was supernatural. A ghost was was killing them. Fine. I'm okay with that. Um... The next thing is the art critic one. And that's another one where it, it, you have an invisible ghost killing her and it's done very artfully. It, it's, you know, because horror tends to be a lot of splatterhouse and things, you know, just you're just throwing blood at the, at the camera in a lot of ways. This was done from across the street. You're watching her be killed in the, in the window from like a hundred yards away, which I thought was very artfully done. Yeah, um, I, but I, I very much enjoyed that. But, and, and again, you as the audience member going, ghost? Or are we just not seeing what's really happening because uh, there's a perspective in uh, being played around with? Um, and so, like I said, so far as the as the movie is on unbe- is being unveiled, and you're not sure what this is, I'm kind of with you. The point that I'm getting to, and and, and then I'll I'll let you respond, is the movie at some point then has to take a perspective, has to take a very distinct. Um, make a very distinct distinction of what this is finally that what should have been the third act this is supernatural it's a ghost this is actually anthony killing people because he's gone nuts whatever it is make a choice and the fact that the film doesn't ever make a choice despite like it could be this it could be that scene one scene two could be this could be that scene three could be this could be that and then you get to scene four and I'm talking, when I say scene, I mean kill scenes. And then when you get to scene four, and you're like, okay, big reveal. And they're like, the big reveal is whatever you want my name to be, daddy. I'm like, ugh. <laughs> I, I, just to explain that, my, when I was thinking about what I was going to say to you about this movie, this, this movie feels like when you're talking to a stripper or a hooker, and you say, what's your name? And she says, whatever you want it to be, daddy. And you're like, no, 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 no. Convince me this is real. <laughs> Conv- the, what I'm paying for is for you, the hooker, to convince me you actually like me and want to sleep with me. That's what the money is for. If you do the whatever you want it to be, daddy thing, you've now broken the illusion and this is a worthless interaction. My, my, my review of the Candyman, it's a hooker that wow. broke the deal. Okay, I have zero experience either <laughs> with, you know, either hookers, or, either hookers or strippers, so I can just... only just let your person, your, your vast, interesting life experience be the guiding force here. Just, just go with it. <laughs> but do you see what I'm saying? I do. Okay. Uh, here's one of my problems with this thing, and we want to talk about the ending separately, so here's my... I, 
this is another issue I have with it. And I want to discuss it separately because I think it is separate to the ending. Sure. It touches on something there, but it's, it's uh, largely separate. Our sequence where teenage girls are violently murdered in a high school bathroom. Yep. Here's my problem with this. And this is a problem with a lot of this movie, the more you think back on it. Most of the kills presented in this film, most, not all, like 90%. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but the only like people that the spirit kills that we see him kill that you don't think deserve it would be Burke's flashback to his sisters. Okay. That's me going off the top of my head here. I don't think the art critic needed to be killed. Well, but don't you understand? She's an evil white woman who made fun of our black, <laughs> our struggling black artist. Who she okay. she accused the artist of being part of the gentrification process, and well, how dare she? Well, <laughs> but our our sequence with teenage girls being violently murdered. Mm-hmm. Here's my problem with this, and this goes to this goes to the ending. First of all, one of them leaves, and God bless you for having a brain in your head. <laughs> she, she nopes out. Before they are violently murdered, we can't just have teenage girls be killed in a bathroom. We must see that they are terrible people. Sure. They must then not only be teenage girls, they must be bullies. And not only must they be bullies, they must bully the one black girl in this prep school, who's not only the one black girl in this prep school, but she has the you know, the green backpack with the rainbow flag and the Black Lives Matter patch. All, and All she was missing was a dashiki. Yeah, like, <laughs> we have to just make this abundantly clear that, no, 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 these bitches gotta die. Right. Because our ending sequence is the Candyman becoming a good guy. Right. And I... Well, can I ask you a question? In ter- sure. Without getting into it in a, an hour-long lecture about the grand history of horror traditions. Okay. So, like, 50 words or less. Yeah, yeah. Isn't killing horrible people kind of a thing in horror? That, that's as common as the day is long. Like, everybody, er, er, everyone except the, the, the surviving girl, is that, is, is that what they're, they're called? The Jamie final Curtis's? girl. Final girl. Everyone but the final girl is shit and no. garbage. And, 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 the, and the monster must saw through them until we get to the pure final girl who is you know, who is wonderful and just, and someone you're cheering for everybody else. You're just kind of rooting for the meat to be sawed. I'm not wrong about that. No, 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 Hang on. Because you brought up like two different points that stretch across a lot of the horror genre, the history of horror. Okay. The initial, what you're talking a little bit about in the initial one is when we talk about like the final girl, Mm -hmm. if we're talking about her in the slasher context, she's meant to be, more virtuous right which is not always to say you're the best person in the world but i was being very facetious no no no, no, i i get you not everyone else that dies along the way is a bag of dicks okay i you've seen the original nightmare on elm street right i have i've seen almost all of them there's nothing wrong with johnny depp's character in that movie okay like he he's not a there are I don't think there's too much wrong with any of the characters that uh, Freddy kills in that movie. I was going to say, but like, isn't isn't the whole thing that Scream talks about is the sort of the um, common framework in which people who are overtly sexual 
they, they they're dying. Yeah. It's, it, 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 horror speaks to a lot of like yes. almost Christian <laughs> themes in the sense of like you you know depending on what depending <clears throat> on the era of horror we're talking about. Yes, you are <laughs> sinful. You want you want to sleep with your teenage girlfriend and therefore and which is a sin and therefore the monster kills you. So Johnny Depp may not have been a bag of dicks in the Nightmare on Elm Street, but he definitely wanted to sleep with Nancy, and he definitely well, got killed for it. Well, Nancy wanted to sleep with him too. The, it's more like sure. This is another thing about. There's another thing about the horror genre when it comes to you know the themes that it touches on. You know, is, mm-hmm. we is we gotta the, link this back to Candyman. Just keeping I, I that, will. Keeping that in mind. Okay. Uh, the question. So, the ultimate question becomes: If we want to talk about the early history of the slasher genre in particular, mm-hmm. is the actor is the intention more of a sin, right? Okay. And that's most early slashers in particular take the position that it's the act, not the desire, which. Again, I'm not going to get into Christian theology about this. That's, a whole, nope. that's a whole other thing. <laughs> it's there. People can research it on yeah. their own. The slightly more modern slashers movies take a bit more of the position that, well, some of them do at least, that, you know, what's the, uh, you know, what is the intention behind what you're doing? You know, are you, are you wallowing in sin and just happy to be... Uh, and then, because this is the way our culture has gone, for some godforsaken reason, we got to the point where nobody wanted to see anyone punished for doing something that they didn't, that they that they have even loosely, like, oh, you got high. And normally this would be where the slasher monster kills you. But everybody gets high and everyone right. likes to nobody wants to Nobody wants to see people killed for normalized behavior. Good, bad, or indifferent. Correct. So... Well, we need the monster to chew through a bunch of bodies. This is a slasher movie. Well, we've got to have them chew through people, and we tend to... We don't want them... For some reason, I don't... This I don't understand. We don't want them to kill a lot of good people. You should. (laughs) They're not supposed to be heroes. Let me say that again. (laughs) For everyone in the back... (laughs) Now I know where you're going with this. Okay, this is brilliant. You're you're wonderful. Go. Your slasher villain should not be a hero. <laughs> they started making everyone the slat most most of the recent ones. They have to make them to horrible, terrible <laughs> human beings. Right. So that when the slasher inevitably either does a face turn in a sequel. Or if this character gets popular, we don't want people to feel bad for having posters of them. Right. They have to mow down the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. And it's a giant, giant problem for exactly the types of reasons that you're articulating. Right. So we see our... Again, this links back to this because we have our girls killed in the bathroom who can't just be innocent... Girls. They can't, can't just. Yeah. They, they, they can't even just be just girls. Yeah, they have girls, to... makeup and Barbie and well, not Barbie, but you know, <laughs> makeup and boys and cell phones and TikTok. It has to be we're shitty people. Yes, and that hat and this is a thing that now has to happen with. Okay, let, let me. This this also goes to this. So let me, because I think this is maybe the only example I've seen of this. You know, no. Let's talk about the ending in particular, and then I I will link back to the point I want to make about Halloween. So okay, let me save that for a minute. So, the ending sequence, Mark. Our supernatural spirit now inhabiting the body of Anthony. 
has become the avenging angel of the black community, apparently. Okay. All right, so wait, we're, we're done, essentially, with everything about this movie but that final sequence, yes? yes. Okay. And Hang on, let me set this up. I've been waiting, and I wanted to wait patiently for you to say all the things you need to say. So are you all the way done? With everything, a, last thing I want to say about everything okay. apart from the finale sequence. Because this has to be set up yes, appropriately. It really does. The writing of everything else, a little bit iffy, but mostly good. Performances, good to great. Direction, solid. People get mad about that symbol anymore, but okay. Direction, solid, right? The like, I, I actually, I really enjoy Nia DaCosta's, yeah. I, I enjoy Nia DaCosta's direct, uh, directorial style as shown in this one. So that's all really good. Every Pretty much everything we've talked about up to this point is positive. Not, mm -hmm. you, not you know, glowing praise, but positive as a general rule. And then we get to I, this. I would say some of the negative things that we're talking about with this movie just happens to be a common problem with, with modern horror. As you were saying, this desperate need to create yeah franchisable ip out of what out of the thing you're supposed to be rooting against yeah that that's a problem again some of the writing being a touch uneven you know these are these are things we say about all kinds of movies they're not unique sure. to this one and then we get to the ending so mark right. your okay please <laughs> uh nia DaCosta, i believe recently talked about how she's glad this didn't this movie was delayed as long as it was because it had it come out during the height of the black lives matter protests in the wake of george floyd's unfortunate passing um, people would have reacted extremely negatively to the movie overall and not given it a fair chance. And I think she is 100% correct about that. I would agree with that, yes. I, okay. I think the I, I don't think you could appropriately separate a lot of what was being discussed in this movie from what was happening at the time. And I don't right. think... I, I, think she's, yeah, I think she's correct. It would not have been given a fair shake. The movie's ending is dumb but it deserves its own discussion. It does not deserve to be called dumb because of George Floyd and Black Lives Matters. Yeah. And that would have been the muddy discussion that would have taken place. So to be clear about two things. One, this movie ends bad, but it does not end bad because of Black Lives Matter or because of George Floyd. And I want to make that clear. I am not reacting to this movie because of those things. I am reacting to this movie because for two thirds of it, you didn't discuss institutional racism in law enforcement. You didn't discuss police brutality. It is somewhat brought up in the discussion of the treatment of the, I can't remember the Sherman, King's name. Uh, Sherman something or other. Yeah. In a second, I'll find it. Um, <clears throat> in his origin, in his yeah, story. Okay, sorry, Sherman Fields is the okay. first one. So the, to be clear, it, about. It's, it is brought up with Sherman Fields. And there is some time spent on this, but then the movie doesn't talk about it anymore. Anthony doesn't run afoul of any police in his walking about through Cabrini Green. There's no discussion. There is discussion about gentrification. There's discussion about, about what happens when um, corporations come into poor areas. There's discussion about uh, people on the lower end of the incomes, uh, the upwardly mobile but lower end of the income spectrum moving into impoverished places and then making it unlivable for people who are not upwardly mobile. These are all things that are discussed throughout the movie. What is not discussed, it is shown in one or two places, but then summarily forgotten about and never discussed again, is, is the relationship between the black community and law enforcement. And I, 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 real briefly, here's the other disconnect for me about this. Mm -hmm. There is no rational discussion around the there is no rational discussion possible around the point 
that in the 1970s, especially in Chicago, black communities were treated with a degree of brutality that other communities weren't. Like, that's that's a statement of fact provable via all sorts of empirical data. So when the guy says, you know, when I was a kid in the 80s or the late 70s, early 80s, and the cops were, I mean, when law enforcement across the board was a lot more, you know, physical and brutal, not just there, but certainly there, not not univert, not just to the black community, but certainly to the black community. Like that's a that's a whole different the discussion of the history of law enforcement as it pertains to this, believe it or not, is not quite the same as discussing contemporary law enforcement. And if you want to have that discussion, I'm not saying you can't, you have to bridge that. Right. Because if you if you try to say that contemporary law enforcement is the same as it was in the late seventies, buddy, that ain't reality. I'm not saying it's great now, but it is not that. What the movie wants to tell you with the final act, okay, so to be clear, the final act is Anthony ascends, he becomes the monster, and then he slaughters a, a, a whole bunch of cops. And the cops are acting badly. They they shoot Anthony unprovoked. They chain up... Uh, can I... Can <laughs> hang I just, on. They, okay, they, they, they chain up um, the Brianna, you know, handcuff her. It's like chain up. They, they handcuff Brianna, and she, you know, and the implication being she is going to be forced to, to lie to uh, so that they can justify the shooting, that kind of a thing. All bad things, right? So cops behaving badly, um, and so then Anthony comes out and kills them all. And the movie, and what the movie wants to tell you is, cops are bad. This this is a Quentin Tarantino esque revenge fantasy of black people turning the tables on bad cops, which would be fine and, and something that we've said is okay when Tarantino does it, but Tarantino like. So Tarantino did this with uh, the, the the World War II movie with Brad Pitt, um, Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards. So when when he kills all the Nazis at the end of the movie, we are taken for a ride the whole time. We are we are shown Nazis, we are shown bad Nazis, and then when we have this upwardly celebration of Nazi death, that is the story he wanted to tell with the appropriate ending for that fantasy. If you were wanting to tell a story that has an explosion of violence against cops, you then have to pepper your movie. You have to knit in cops doing bad things throughout the narrative. That isn't the narrative you told. No, not at all. None of it. You show a little bit of it with Sherman, and then it's summarily dropped. I mean, and, and then here's the thing. The whole, like, they were trying to pay homage to the, to the spirit of the Candyman movies, which is this, you know, which is the story of white people killing a black person because he fell in love with a white woman. Very, very racially intoned. Very, very modern. Very, you know, this this is a thing dealt with in all throughout the course of uh, media and literature. The black man in love with the white woman and what a sin and you know what a what a, what a thing this is and how we deal with it in any array of ways. Okay, that's Candyman. That's that's what they told you with the first three movies of Candyman. That's what this was. But now you're saying. Oh no, Candyman is the spirit of black vengeance against a, against a system that puts black people down. You said none of that throughout this movie. What you talked about was um <clears throat> what, what you talked about was impoverished communities and gentrification and what happens. What you talked about was to a degree collective trauma of black people trying to uh, make it in a country with institutionalized racism. 
you didn't really talk about the, tr the relationship between the cops and the black community. So when you have this explosion of violence, it is such a knee, it is such a whiplash inducing moment to where like, I don't understand why I'm supposed to root for this guy killing cops. You've only just done that. It's, it's encapsulated in that one scene. And that's not enough to justify the amount of violence that was portrayed on screen. It was almost as if to say like, we don't have an ending here. Well, okay. People are all really mad at cops right now. There's a whole like defund the police thing happening. There's the George Floyd thing. What if we killed a whole bunch of them? That'll make the audience happy. Go with that. And it's like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> you, you can't just do that. You can't tell me, you know, the story that goes A to Y. And then you're, and then the next thing that should follow is Z, but it's Lambda instead. You're like, no, 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 no. You just did something entirely different there. I know you think they're the same thing, but it's not. Probably should have said Zeta. Zeta would have made more sense. But you see what I'm saying? Like the whole thing felt like an entirely different movie, and nothing that had ha almost nothing that happens preceding that end sequence linked up with it or mattered. You've just gone in this entirely different direction. And I'm not saying don't tell stories where ghosts kill where ghosts kill cops. Uh, tell all the stories you want, but the whole thing then needs to be the ghost story about you know. Uh, uh, an avenging ghost killing mis you know be misbehaving cops not the last 10 minutes of your movie yeah i i don't disagree with any of that i think it's a i, I think you're largely correct i here's the other thing that i have to throw out here about this if we're talking just about the cop in the end sequence who shoots anthony mm-hmm I always, I have been, I have forced myself to do this a little bit because if you don't, you wind up with this wildly skewed worldview. If you're that cop who breaks into, you know, you hear someone saying, you hear someone screaming, right? Mm -hmm. You've been told, the only information you've been given is there's a black man with a meat hook killing people <laughs> and you open this door and there's this woman covered in blood a dead body in the room and a guy on the floor with a hook. What makes the most sense here? <laughs> and, and I absolutely mean this. Like what, what realistically, like this is not even look, cops are called on scenes that they should not be called to all the time. It is a giant flaw in elements of the system, right? It's one of the very few things in the defund the police movement. I actually agree with that. We need other, we need other people you can call in certain circumstances because cops are not trained to deal with a mental health crisis. Right? There are there are now mental health people being embedded with police officers to respond to those kinds of situations. Which good thing, right? Like cops should not have to deal with that crap. It's not part of their training. They can't do everything. And when they get there and they act badly, they should be held accountable hundred percent. I'm not one of these horrible apologists, but if you say there's a maniac with a meat hook wandering around this part of the <laughs> this section of the city, killing people, you're not going to call Mark. <laughs> you're going to call the cops. And, 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 and even if you did, sir, I see that you have a meat hook. <laughs> I see dead bodies. I see blood everywhere. How are you feeling? At, at which point you are now running for your life. <laughs> like, how, I, does, I, how does having a meat hook 
and blood everywhere make you feel, sir? Like, like, come on, let's let's be real, somewhat realistic. Yeah, and so this is a circumstance where the police were called. The police would have responded to this, and you walk into a room with nothing, with no other. Like, we as the audience are given perfect information about Anthony. His the fact that he just had his hand cut off and he's a little bit transforming. We got a supernatural element going on, and he just he doesn't want to be here. He needs help. Like we know this because that's what we've seen. If you flip this to we follow the cops who are told maniac with a meat hook, and all we <laughs> see is that guy break into the door and woman on the ground, dead body, blood everywhere, man with meat hook. Like what? What's the reasonable thing to do here? If you right. don't have perfect information and in, in defense of that, the way that it's shot is you are the audience's perspective is you're looking at Brianna. Yeah. And she's holding Anthony. And we don't see Anthony move to my recollection. Correct me if I'm wrong here. No, no. But, I, but I, I think he's lying prone in her hands. He is. And then he's riddled with bullets. OK, I understand people are mad. I understand the perception of. And in some cases, I'm sure it actually has happened of a prone person not attacking the police being riddled with bullets anyway. I'm not getting into how much it happens, when it happens, or any of that. I'm sure in the grand statistic of times where overt force was unnecessarily used, I'm sure it's happened. If the problem, again, is there was no reason for the cop to shoot Anthony. But the film says, but this is what cops do, and so he does, except that it happens at no other time during the course of this movie. Yeah. That's my problem with it. Uh, you, you actually had brought something up that I mentioned, and for some reason I just lost it, that I wanted to mention briefly. Um, it'll come back to me or it won't, so. <laughs> uh, it's... The other thing about the way that shot, and one part of this is good. We are focused on Brianna, right? Mm -hmm. we're, this is just like her, her uh, shoulders and up. Right? This is a, this is all on her. After the firearm is discharged, she actually checks herself. Like, oh, right. they didn't shoot me. Like, I actually liked that. That I thought that was really well done. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know. It, they frame they frame the shooting of anthony as you know this horrible tragedy because we all be, to the audience because we have perfect knowledge perfect knowledge never exists ever and it's i'm i'm more okay with the kind of sliminess of the of the other detective going well this was a marginal call by the guy who shot so let's we now exert pressure to make sure that it looks good with a more fabricated story than reality and that i think is a bit more true to life i, I imagine it also needed to be set up earlier in the movie 100 percent. like i agree with you that this is the major failing of the finale is it takes something that was not discussed because again i'm i'm more willing to set police brutality from the past in its own thing as yeah it was a much more brutal thing then it was terrible then it's it, I mean, it's still terrible when it happens. It was absolutely terrible then. But if you if you try to make a 40-year gap in the, the development of, you know, if you try to say that f nothing has changed in 40 years, 
you're first of all you're just inaccurate like that that is empirically incorrect right second it leaves this giant segment in the middle of your movie where you talk about other things so when the lobster drops at the end you go wait why is there a lobster right don't you understand there was a crustacean you're like no 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 that, that was a crustacean of a different variety this is a lobster why is a lobster here right well because lobster right so the whole time we've been dealing in crabs <clears throat> and then you throw a lobster in there and you're like well where did this lobster come from well it was always there don't you understand <laughs> lobster is a part of society we don't like lobsters and we should defund the lobsters there was no lobster in any part of this movie <laughs> yeah that's that's my, that's one of my big gripes at the end and here's here's my other major i have one point that I, my major gripe let me let me hold that for just a second because this movie felt the need to beat you over the head with this at the end and i don't know what i don't really oh. think hang on don't say you don't know why when i say i don't know why Mm-hmm. You had a sequence in this movie that made this point better than this. Mm-hmm. The time when Anthony goes back to talk to Burke the second time, and Burke's actually reading a Clive Barker book, which is a nice little Easter egg. When Burke talks about Candyman mm-hmm. the second time, and he gives you the history, he concludes with, that's Candyman. That's how we deal with the fact that this happened and to a degree it's still happening that's your point right that's the point of this story that's the point of this that's what you're talking about Mm -hmm. i don't need no one needs this finale sequence when you've already made that point that eloquently It, it it actually undercuts it to be that to be that over the top at the end right unless you're built look had there been scenes of the cops like why are you walking around the project you know why are you walking around cabrini green anthony show us your papers anthony you got a driver's license anthony like how dare you go inside without being vaccinated anthony (laughs) 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 Um, you know or a scene with uh brianna and her brother you know maybe getting pulled over by a cop like you have to this is, what the, this is the point that I was saying before, and I don't want to continue to repeat myself. Well, but the finale, <clears throat> the finale assumes facts, not in evidence. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like, you have, in order for that finale to work, you have to build towards it. And I think that's what we're saying in very different ways, kind of over and over again. Yeah. They never build, they don't build to that ending at all. They just tack it on as if it, as if its appearance is evident of its um, necessity itself. It's like it, it belongs in the movie because it happened. And I'm like, nope, I'm not going to let you get away with that. Not on this podcast, not when I'm talking about it. You don't get away with self-evidence for self-evidence sake. Not when I'm interpreting your film. Uh, And here's my last thing about this. Because this, this really, this gets my goat on occasion. Your, I said this already, so I'm going to reiterate. Your slasher villain should not be a hero. Mm Mm-hmm. Your slasher villain should not be an anti-hero. Your slasher villain should be something that you want to see defeated and destroyed because it is violently murdering people. Right. Even the godforsaken Nightmare on Elm Street remake with... um, Haley Joel Osment? No. 
<clears throat> no, no, no. Um, other three name actor. Please continue. Why am I forgetting his name? I'll look it up. Just go. Okay, thank you. Because he was actually a really good Freddy. Even that movie, with all of its problems, all of its pitfalls, managed to avoid the Grand Canyon-sized pothole that is making your slasher villain sympathetic. Jackie Hurl Alley. Or, sorry, Jackie, Jackie Hurl Alley. Yes, sorry. <clears throat> now... There was a sequence in the trailer, and it's in that movie. Uh, it's in that movie, that, that, that Nightmare on Elm Street remake, where Jackie Hurley is playing Freddy Krueger, and he is running from the vengeful mob of parents of girl of the children that he has allegedly abused, and he's screaming over his shoulder, "I didn't do it." Now, Sean Comer mentioned to me that this kind of got his, you know, danger antenna up just a little bit. Like, eh, there shouldn't be ambiguity here. Freddy Krueger should be a bad guy. Like, but what's going on here? I was willing to give the movie a little bit of the benefit of the doubt only because whether he is guilty or not guilty of molesting children, if he's running away from a vengeful mob, he's not going to gleefully admit to it while doing so. Like that, he's always, <laughs> like one way or the other, you're saying it wasn't me. It was the one-armed man, right? All right. <laughs> it was me, Kappa. Put the cuffs on. Yeah, like that doesn't... So yeah. now that movie, unartfully and very, very poorly has a bit in the has a segment in the middle where it casts ambiguity about Freddy Krueger's guilt about molesting children about, about sexually abusing these children. My takeaway from that was this was a poor bit of writing that was trying to display the survivors, the teenagers who are being killed being in denial about what happened to them. Now again, this is badly badly done because if you if you tell a teenager who has repressed memories of sexual trauma, by the way, when you were, you know, 5 uh, you know, Uncle Freddy took you behind the shed and he did unspeakable things to you. The the default response is going to be no. It's denial. That's one of the, that. There's a reason that's the first stage of you know grieving. Sure. It, that movie just handles that very, very badly. And consequently, at the end, when it's revealed, no, he actually did all that stuff that he was accused of. It, it falls flat. Like, it, like that doesn't work for a variety of reasons. I had a similar moment to Sean's when I watched the trailer for this because they, they showed the shadow puppet trailer. Like that was one of the first things they revealed. And again, that's what plays over the end credits. And I kind of went, this is not, this is not something we should root for. Not a good guy. Don't do this. Don't do this. Whatever you do, don't do this. And because, for a very specific reason, Daniel Robitaille in the original was a victim of a horrible, horrible crime, right? There's, there's no justification for what happened to him. None right. whatsoever. That at no point makes you root for him when he appears and murders people or steals children and is like, he's never the good guy. Right. You can explain your villain. You can make your villain a victim most villains are in point of fact, if you look throughout the long, sad history of human tragedy, most people who do t things like this have trauma in their past. Mo not all, but most. It's the cycle. It's, you know, the, uh, the, the very like stupid hashtag version of this is hurt people, hurt people. The slightly more artful way of saying it, I forget who said this, but it's been my experience that it is the tortured who grow up to become the torturers. Okay. That, never makes them sympathetic. 
that never makes them the person you root for. And it has to be that way for a very specific reason. Because otherwise, you know, a bad thing happening to you doesn't justify you doing bad things. Adolf Hitler was... Not to, I'm, not to, sorry, I'm sneering because, like, <clears throat> boy, is that a problem we're wrestling with in this country culturally right now. I know. Now. This is it, It's the worst thing ever. It really is. I mean, not to do the Godwin's Law thing, but if you... This is not a joke. If you look at who Adolf Hitler was before his service in World War One and after, he is two radically different people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he... The trauma of war combined. He was gassed at one point. He survived a gas attack uh, in World War One, and plenty of a lot of people had long-term uh, brain injuries related to gas attacks, and it changed him. Does that somehow make him the hero of World War Two? Yeah. Do you, is he now forgiven for his transgressions? No. Not. I mean, not by man. I don't know what I God, mean. I don't know what God says about that, and I, I mean, leave that to God. But yeah, a more modern one, and so for everyone playing the the Rattling Broadcast and drinking game or bingo, um, Chris Benoit. Chris Benoit, I think, has been distinctly proven to have been suffering from brain damage when uh, he yeah. committed when he committed the murders of his wife and children. Um, do then you know is he then forgiven for having committed murder? No. He was, you know, we should understand what was happening to him and try to prevent it in the future from happening to other people in similar circumstances. But that does not absolve Chris Benoit for committing first degree murder. No, it it doesn't. And we can go down a lot. There's a laundry list of people sure. that this is. <clears throat> and it, but it does make the point. And I think there's a societal turn in this, and I can't pinpoint exactly when it happened. But I think if we examine contemporary society. The rise of entitlement culture. Not just entitlement culture. I mean, this is a little bit that, but I don't know exactly when this happened, but victimhood started conferring status. Oh, boy. You're talking about like a 20 to 40 year evolution. I, I'm aware. Coming out, of so, coming out of like sociological society. Yeah. And, <laughs> again, no. I don't, and I'm not trying to have that whole discussion, right? right. Like, like that, that, that's a whole discussion. Yeah, I'm saying that's where we are. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, consequently, this is now seeped into our media and our stories where you're. Anything bad happening to a character, especially a villain, somehow now makes them a well, good it, guy in a in a reimagining and i mean you, an, another way of saying it there's a common thread throughout media culture that is nobody nobody is a villain and we should under, seek to understand everybody everybody has a story and it's you know and it's something about your old podcast everybody uh, everybody loves a bad guy that i think is now sorely missing from something that you hit upon during that series that is now sorely missing from the national conversation specifically presentation of stories through media is that lack of understanding that there are some people who are bad and we can understand why they're bad, but they're bad and they should be treated as such. And we, we've migrated into this idea of everyone should be absolved of their sins. It, it's, it's a, it, for, unless, for, unless, hang on, unless you're the person who committed a crime against our hero, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, like, it, it, um, so by way of example, uh, Maleficent should be a fairly easy one to understand. Uh, the king is 
presented as the villain mm-hmm. and <clears throat> and the, and his actions are supposed to somehow justify having gone through what she did maleficent's cavalcade of evil is now justified well how far back do we want to abstract this what happened to the king that made him decide this was a good idea yeah what happened to the person who hurt him that made him like this is a this is an unsustainable methodology of viewing the world it utterly eschews personal responsibility right and which i think is a big thing people are after in terms of like we you know we tell stories to move culture in a certain direction that is somewhat their purpose yeah you know movies books music these are all common these, these are all commentary about the national psychology and conversation and they are done so to move things in a direction that is preferable to those doing them. And do, and there is definitely a concerted movement to eschew self-responsibility from people to any number of ends. Relating that back to Candyman. Here's the what I wanted I mentioned I wanted to talk about this because if you've not seen this won't make sense unless you've seen the movie, so I'll try to be brief. But if you've not seen Rob Zombie's Halloween, he did two Halloween movies. Uh, and in the first one, the entire first act, more or less, is Michael Myers as a child and his absolutely deplorable upbringing that leads to him deciding, I'm going to kill everyone. People struggled with this. And you look at how long ago that movie came out. They People struggled with this going, so am I supposed to root for Michael Myers? And I wanted to pull my hair out at the time going, <laughs> No. What Rob Zombie is doing here is because the original Halloween, John Carpenter's, opens with the child Michael Myers stabbing his sister to death for no reason. Because he is... I think it's implied he's stabbing her because of sin. When I say no reason, I mean it's specifically within the context of the movie, not in the context of the writing. Okay. The child kills his sister. We are never given a reason. Like, we can infer reason as the audience, but within the movie... No reason is given. Okay. And this goes on to be, you know, the kid is damaged and in ways we can't understand, because especially because of you know, the time period that was made, and he is just like the avatar of evil. And okay, fair enough. Like I, that's a fine enough story. When Rob Zombie did it, he took a bit more. So what would have to happen in your life to make you turn out like this, right? Right. So you've you're part of a blended family. Your parents are shitty. Your stepfather is a abusive and alcoholic and you're not given any and no one loves you and blah 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 like he put together all the things that if you wanted to say what would make a human being decide that turning into michael myers is a rational thought here's the cavalcade of crap and even you know 10 15 years ago when that movie came out however long ago it was there are people who went so am i supposed to root for this guy no (laughs) Saying this is how he wound up here is not the same as saying root for this person. You can explain without generating sympathy. In fact, it's a very important thing when you're trying to discuss your villains. Right. That's suppo- that if you want to explain them, fine. But for God's sake, don't make them sympathetic. Not everyone need somebody put this on Twitter, I forget, but not every villain needs to be redeemed. Not every villain needs a redemption arc. Right. <clears throat> Candyman's one of those. This is a, <laughs> you can acknowledge the victimhood of the people and the, 
the kind of tragedy that spawned this phenomenon without saying, you know, him carving up 14 year old girls in a in a high school bathroom is a good thing. Like, yeah. Whoa. The internal consistency of who he kills in this movie and then killing the cops, too. Like, it's 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 deeply not equal. I think incongruous. That's the word I was looking for. Sorry. I think what they were doing with the end is Brianna says Candyman four times. And then the cop says it the fifth, and it is his saying that, which is wildly inconsistent as well with the rules of how he's summoned. But I think that's kind of what they were trying to go for. Ugh, it, it didn't work for me. Uh, no, it. I hate the ending of this movie. I hate the ending of this movie so much it actively makes me dislike <laughs> all the stuff I liked about the movie and everything yeah. prior. It's that, that is, bad. That is the tragedy of Candyman. I think we need to conclude on this. We have been at this now for ninety minutes. Um. The tragedy of Candyman 2021 is that it was a fine movie until the very end. In the very end, in the in the end, is so bad it ruined the rest of the movie, which is saying something when you're when your movie's only 90 minutes long. It really is. And here's the thing: like, I feel like this could have been an important touchstone in the national conversation. I think this movie was trying to generate some some thinking amongst people, you know, and have you know. It's so hard to get people engaged in things that are important. You know, I've been uploading my old uh, progressive conservatism shows, and we there's at least one bit almost every show where we take a really important story and compare it to what was popular in that particular week. So, for example, the last one I put up, this again, 2007, so bear with me. But, like, Nancy uh, Pelosi's Congress had um, voted on a, like, joint resolution against troop surge and that should have been the most important story of the week but that was the week britney had a mental melt britney spears had a breakdown and shaved her head so the world wasn't paying attention to the troop surge legislation they were paying attention to britney shaved head and i think this was also around the time of janet jackson's Aaron boob it's um around, it's yeah that was all around the same time and so everyone in on earth including our major news uh news stations was focusing on britney's uh, mental health uh, deterioration and Janet Jackson's boob and wasn't paying any attention to Congress and what they were doing. And which is a large part of how we wound up with our current, I've said this for a while. I think the American, the current American system has largely just traded the old monarchy from England for, instead of, you know, Kings, Dukes, Earls and Barons, we now have presidents, congressmen, senators. The point that but I was that, getting, that's a whole other discussion. The point that I was getting to is you want people to have a coherent, conversation about race in america because it's important um but it's hard to get people to engage in any kind of intelligent way to do that so you do it through media you do it through film you do it through music you know jay-z ha has 99 problems but a bitch ain't one at least gets people talking because there's a segment of that song that deals with the treatment of blacks by cops and so maybe we're not talking about institutional racism in law enforcement and the treatment of the black community but we are talking about jay-z's 99 problems um, and so then you kind of have to have that conversation. You may not be talking about those things, but now Candyman is out and you saw Candyman. And so when talking about Candyman, these things are coming up and that's the importance of this film. But all that gets wiped away when your ending is so bad, you've now ruined whatever participation this movie was supposed to have in the national conversation is now so incoherent and so wildly off kilter and um, out of alignment that this movie no longer matters to the national conversation. And people will say that it does, and we'll get to that momentarily because I'm sure that's going to be 90% of the Rotten Tomatoes reviews we're gonna read. 
Oh, is everyone is elevating the importance of this film? But I'm telling you it isn't. And I'm telling you it isn't because the ending is so bad. I'll give you the final word and then we'll move on. Uh, I don't. I mean, I, do you agree with what I'm saying? By and large, yeah. Okay. Uh, like, I, I, if I wanted to really nitpick, maybe I could, but I don't. But because okay. I, <clears throat> I mean, I said it, this ending is so bad, it actively makes me dislike the rest of the movie, which I, mm -hmm. as I think I went over, I very much enjoyed the viewing experience until the end. Yeah. There's a lot of good in this movie. I, I am very much looking forward to what Nia DaCosta does next as a director. I think she has a great uh, kind of sense of style about her when it comes to this stuff. So I'm curious what she'll do next. But boy, when your ending is this bad, <laughs> I mean, it it, it re, you know, there's an old uh, bit about psychology, right? If you it, if you give people a list, what are they most likely to remember? Right. The first thing and the last thing. Uh, if you give them a string of numbers, you know the same thing. Like the first four and the last four, they'll almost always get correct. When you, it's why when you do credits for movies. Uh, the most prized possession in the opening credits is the first one and then the last one. Right. Because that's what people remember. No one remembers the people in the middle. They remember yeah. the first, they remember like the first two names yeah. and then the St last two. Starring Johnny Depp, directed by Michael Bay. Yeah. And everything else in the middle is from Uh Unless, the, and until you get to the end, it's like, and featuring Anthony Hopkins, like right. that kind of thing. Like that's, that's why that's important. So when your ending is this bad, it does. It is one of the things that sticks out. Not all the good camera work that was done, not all the interesting shots, not all the great perspectives, you know, not all the wonderful ways that you played with Anthony going nuts, not the you know good body horror that was done as his arm starts kind of rotting and falling away. Like that all falls away in the face of a ridiculous ending. And the, la the last thing I wanted to mention, and this is a minor yes. point. Why'd you wait so long to put Tony Todd on this thing, man? I, th Can I say that we didn't really need him? Like, this was Anthony's story, not not Daniel Robitaille's story. So, like, I feel like throwing him in there was so fan servicey. It was an odd choice. It was an odd choice. I think you're right. It was a little bit fan servicey. Here's how I would have done this, just for comparison. Our first Candyman that we talk about here is uh, Sherm is the character of Sherman. Like this is the one that Burke brings up. He's the one we see most often when we look in the mirror and see doing the killings. He would have been the first one. I would have kept that. I actually think this movie needed to cycle through them as Anthony keeps going nuts. As yeah. his obsession with his story grows, we see other people in that role. And, and then, then you could have actually shown cops interacting with them. What if it's a generational thing of there's always a black guy in the community gets a shit kicked out of him by cops? Because then when you want to kill all the cops at the end, I'm with you. Yeah, that you could absolutely do it that way. Or, I mean, even if you don't do flashbacks, you know, if he just he learns one more story and then that's the version of Candyman we see in the mirror when he looks in the mirror. That's the one that does the next sequence of kills. And then this culminates at the end as he gets to the or as he gets to the concrete origin with Tony Todd. And then we let Tony Todd be around and do his wonderful, wonderful work for longer. Instead, you do a digital de-aging of his face at the very end. And it just, it just, it, it fell flat for me because it, it didn't quite work the way they wanted it to. I think the given how, given some of their execution choices, I also just needed more Tony Todd, you know, doing Candyman, doing the voice, doing the line readings for, that character because he's so good at it and 
it's sadly, sadly lacking. It's one of the big things that I think is missing from this, even as a Candyman film, is some of Tony Todd's voiceover work. Yeah. Uh, All right. But that's a minor thing. All right. Moving on to the next segment. Here comes the money. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Here comes the money. All right, on a budget of $25 million, the box office, as we record this on a Tuesday afternoon, is $27.6 million. It's the number one movie of the weekend, as we will get into shortly. Uh, and I think it's also, the it, uh, just in terms of the timeline of the pandemic, I think this broke some records. Uh, I can't remember which ones exactly, but uh, this is, you know, for, for what it is, it's, it's a good, it's, you know, it's not F nine, but it's it's doing well for Universal. Universal. Um, I think this is also. I think the, one of the big statistical things about this is this is the first number one movie in a, in America in a weekend directed by a black woman. So good for her. You know, congratulations. It's a nice bit. Of, it's a nice bit of trivia. Um, all right, for the weekend that was August twenty seventh through the 29th. Um, as I predicted when we reviewed Free Guy, um, Free Guy would have Can a two I- week. Can I just briefly say, as far as this goes, people being like some of the hot, some of the headlines for around the news that Candyman won the weekend, people were like, it's in surprising upset or whatever. Like, I yeah, surprised? I mentioned that on Twitter. I was like, why are you shocked by this? Your only co- like your only new release competition was a very much was very much an indie film that I think here clocks in at number thirteen. <laughs> yeah, like, and Free Guy in its third week. Right, and then like, no, nope, and then last weekend was dead. By the way, did you end up seeing Reminiscence? I did, actually. I, I well, you're the only one. Well, I watched it on HBO Max. <laughs> Again, uh, you're the only one. I'm not the only one. I rather enjoyed it. It's not great. Uh, the dialogue, the dialogue thinks it's smarter than it is at times, and there's a right. bit of narrative. Uh, there's a bit of narrative muddling that goes on. Some of which is intentional, some of which isn't. And I really took a, a major issue with the conclusion because of a single solitary line. Okay. But Hugh Jackman is completely incapable of giving a bad performance, so he he does he does great work. So I said when we reviewed Free Guy, I said Free Guy's going to have a two week run because that second week, you know, it was its only competition was a day and date HBO movie that no one's going to go see called Reminiscence, and you know, and then like Paw Patrol, um, and it was. And then I said it's going to get defeated by Candyman, and I think there might have been some doubt about that. And I'm like, no, it's of course it's going to be the number one. It has no other competition. Yeah, and by the, by the time you get to Free Guy <laughs> in its third week, yeah, whatever right. news coming out is going to beat it. Right. So that, that's all. That not these are not judgments about the quality of these movies uh, in this particular instance. This is movies don't generally have more than a three week run, and if something is big enough in its third week, it's going to win. That's just like common sense when it comes to this stuff. Anyway, Candyman debuted at number one. Free Guy dropped from one to two. Paw Patrol dropped from two to three. Jungle Cruise, three to four. Jungle Cruise just got cited for a sequel. So yay, more Jungle Cruise movies. Hooray. Hang on, hang on. One thing about that to whoever's writing this. Look look at me, okay? Intern, tell whoever's writing the Jungle Cruise sequel. For the love of God, I don't need The Rock and Emily Blunt to be on the rocks or broken up when this movie starts. (laughs) Don't do it. Don't speaking of don't don't breathe too. Drop from four to five. Respect five. <laughs> respected so badly and no and so and had so, such disinterest that it's already out on video on demand. Like <laughs> the poor, that's so sad. Um, it, three, three weeks in the Look, theaters from MGM. A perfectly I, lovely cast. I'm sure it's a great movie and nobody cares. Look, the Oscars watched the trailer for that movie and did a uh, Mad Max from Fury Road. That's bait. 
<laughs> uh, Suicide Squad dropped from six to seven. The Protege, seven to eight. The Nighthouse, eight to nine. Old uh, kept its spot at number 10 with six weeks uh, in the box office. Reminiscence, nine to 11. Black Widow, 11 to 12. Um, some non-wide release films here. We've got uh, An Egg Rescue, which debuted at number 13. Together, which debuted at number 18. And Death Rider in the House of the Vampires at um, number 25 from 43, it looks like. So it opened in more places. Yeah, it opened in more, more places. Uh, the Worldwide Box Office. Um, F9 still making money, honey. Um, Hi, Mom, still number one. F9 now number two. Finally beat out Detective Chinatown 3. So that's movement. It's currently at 700 million worldwide. I mean, at this point, F9 is now slated to be the most successful movie of 2021 for what that's worth. Uh, I hate all of you, for the record. You know what's weird? So, like, Forever, our Forever the continued Purge continued existence of that sequ- of that franchise. Our Forever Purge review did really well in both the places where it was measurable. Um, various podcast catchers, where we get to look at those statistics. Plus, it was really you know for for our numbers, it did well um, on YouTube. Jungle Cruise did well in both places. You know what didn't do well, and no one gave a shit that we talked about. F nine, the Fast Saga. <laughs> so the most successful movie worldwide of the year, not just in china people cared the least what we thought about that i'm Other- gonna go I, hold on i'm gonna go out on a limb here and say no one actually cares about f9 there's people mm-hmm. who watch it right no i think even the people who watch it don't care about it sure um moving like, on jungle, jungle cruise people cared about they were loosely interested in mm-hmm. you know i uh, godzilla versus kong also did yeah. fairly well so and people cared what we said about that a little bit and that's yeah. not and that's not one where you yelled at me a lot so, you know, <laughs> just, just going to throw those out there. Um, Godzilla vs. Kong at number four. It's it's dead. It's not making any more money. It's, it, it didn't crack $500 million. Um, It's a sh- legendary. That's kind of a shame. They were betting on the world not falling apart and it making a billion they, dollars. Yeah, it, they, they, released, they also released that at a point when theaters were just kind of starting to reopen. And then a few weeks later, you know, things kind of shut down again in some major markets. So that was, right. that was just really unfortunate timing for uh, Godzilla vs. Kong. Uh, Black Widow. So, Shang Chi debuts this Friday, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, Phase yeah. Four, not not to get not a, on a on a too long of a tangent here, but like Black Widow opened poorly, and you know, it, it, because of its day and date situation, not making the kind of money that was expected, and got Marvel Phase Four on screen off to kind of a poor start. And now Shang Chi is tracking to have the worst opening of any Marvel movie ever. Going all the way back to Iron Man, including I, the Incredible Hulk, like not good. I talked with my brother a little bit about this. Actually, it kind of came mm-hmm. up as an ancillary discussion. Um, because he's he, he puts the you know he put the MCU movies on to be like background stuff while he's working. So like his second monitor. He and Disney Plus has a whole section of them that is the MCU, and it will show you them in the order in which they were released. Right. So you just play, and it goes all the way through from Iron Man to Endgame. And he mentioned, you know, these are wonderfully cohesive. You know, there's stuff that was not intended to necessarily be seeds in some of the early movies that once they started gaining steam as a property, the creative team looked back and went, oh, potential seeds. And they moved them forward. So there's always there's always connective tissue. And then when you look at the break that occurs at the end of the Infinity Saga, end of phase three, right? Mm -hmm. Where whether you want to call that, um, you know, Spider-Man Far From Home as a nice little epilogue or, 
you want to call it just end game strictly and then uh, far from home is supposed to be like your little lead into phase four. I don't care how you want to just draw that distinction. That really doesn't matter to me because it's not going to change the point. What we've got so far from phase four ain't good. We've got, and some of this is the release order getting screwed up in fairness, right. but you had WandaVision, like most of what's been released so far for phase four has been on Disney plus, like it has been television essentially. Right. And arguably the most important thing that they did was the multiverse spawning out of Loki and how many, so how much of Dr. Strange are we going to have to devote to explaining what happened in Loki? Because well, how many the, people didn't see it? Look, I, let me tell you something about modern culture that I hate. I hate trailer reactions and I hate the people that do them. Why? Come at me. <laughs> I'm, genuinely, <laughs> on, I'm genuinely curious about why now. Because a trailer is an advertisement. It's, it's not something to be judged in whole. And I think people, and I think people get in, I think people get overly judgmental. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't hate, I don't hate the concept of trailers. That's not what I'm saying. A trailer is an advertisement. It's yeah. here's a couple of scenes from a movie to get you enticed to go see this thing, to build up um, interest. And people take those trailers and judge them as if they're the whole movie. And they, and they make prejudicial statements about how good or bad the movie is going to be based on the advertisement. You know, it's how, like watching. How, oh, dare, it's, how dare advertising have to do its job, right? Well, I mean, you watch a commercial no, no, for I, a Whopper, and you look at that and you go, "That that that sandwich looks terrible. Therefore, it is terrible. Therefore, I'm not going to go see it." It's like you have no idea how this thing really tastes. You saw a picture of it on television. You got you got to go experience thing the way it was meant to be experienced, and then make a judgment. But the problem is we've developed this entire culture of things are bad because I saw a portion of them. And from that portion of it, in the way that it was presented, I now know everything I need to know about this movie and can make coherent statements about it. Well, like, it, hang on. I hate that culture. There's a there's also a sad bit of do you want to know you want a part of why that developed? I, no. I think I think that, hang on. No, I, I want to nuke it from orbit. It's the only okay, way to be but... sure. It is, but I think part of that developed as trailers started giving away the movie. Okay. Like, at, the trailer stopped being a traditional advertisement, and it started being the elevator pitch, right? Like, okay. here's my beginning, middle, and end of this thing. Right. And also, to be fair, if you're good about reading the tea leaves in a trailer, it'll tell you everything you need to know. I mean that's fine. I can. I'm still allowed to hate it and everyone that you does are. it because they do it badly and and they annoy me. Okay. In any case, um, Doctor Strange in the Spider-Man trailer comes across like an incompetent boob. <laughs> and and if I'm just going on the trailer, the exact thing I didn't want to do. But if I'm forced to at gunpoint, it seems like it has absolutely nothing to do with Loki. So we're 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 in for a bit of incoherency that I'm not really looking forward to. Like, I know everybody, like, the big thing on Twitter was a line about people have seen the Spider-Man Far From Home, uh, No Way Home trailer, and have lost their chill. And it's one of those lines that made me want to throw my computer full throttle out the window. I hate you all, and I don't want to be a part of this planet anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, be happy that Willem Dafoe and Alfred Molina are going to show up as Green Goblin and Doc Ock, respectively. We'll see. And leave it at that. We'll see what they do. That's my point. Like, I don't have enough information to make a co to make a coherent decision about this movie. I was shown pictures in rapid fashion. Look, I, I will go with you that they made Doctor Strange look like a complete moron 
mm-hmm. which he's not supposed to be. So, look, I made this joke, and I'm going to make it again here, because they're essentially adapting the One More Day storyline, which is one of the most reviled in Spider-Man history <laughs> for a reason. But it's also one that is that is done because, uh, to give you the elevator pitch, uh, Aunt May is killed in the events of Civil War, and Peter Parker makes a deal with Mephisto to bring her back from the dead in exchange for his marriage and happiness with Mary Jane. Because Joe Casada is a simpering jackass, you can't <laughs> conceive of Peter Parker existing beyond high school. Yeah. It's nonsense, but that's what they're doing. So I almost wonder if this wasn't done at least partially to troll all the people in who watched WandaVision and went, Mephisto. I um I would I would accept that. I will I will accept anything coming out of Hollywood that hurts the comic book community. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, come at me, bros. Anyway, uh, speaking of come at me, bro, Quiet Place number six in the world. Corella number seven, which is also now getting a sequel. Speaking of, we really don't need your villains to be sympathetic because bad things happen to them. The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It at number eight, Chinese Doctors at number nine, and Jungle Cruise number 10 at 186 million. It's weird things that are getting, that are not, I mean, there was a an article that, um, that was out that, um, you know, I'll, despite the fact that you know, we hear all of these very positive things about movies right now. The fact of the matter is, given their budgets and the way the world is currently operating, most movies that are coming out, the studios are taking a bath on. And it's so funny to me that like Corella was not financially successful. Jungle Cruise is not being is not financially successful, well, not in any way that we know success to be a thing. And th- yet they're greenlining sequels as if to say, we get it. Things the these things might have done better had we not been in the middle of a pandemic and a resurgent pandemic. So let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and do more of them, which I think is a really odd place to be right now in Hollywood production history. Look, it's the place everyone wants to be in Hollywood production history. They get to do whatever the hell they want with no consequences because of because of events legitimately beyond their control. Mm. Um, look, I'll say this. I'll say this about Jungle Cruise in particular. That seems to have done as um, that seems to have done very well on Disney Plus. I mean, so did Cruella. So there might be something there to offset the theatrical returns that makes them that makes the people who count the money, the people who actually have to figure these things out, go, okay, we're probably good. And yeah. and here's the other thing about that, as far as greenlighting sequels, fan reaction, sort of given the way the world is, sort of irrespective of box office returns is there an appetite for more of this is as much the conversation that they're going to be having internally as how did this do purely financially and look i hated cruella you hated cruella but people didn't and <laughs> i hate people but you know jungle cruise you and i both liked i think you and i both said i like the sure. fact that i actively bullied the comic book community and people who into fan tricks and you're like clutching your pearls two minutes later i hate people and like Wait, why am I oh. not allowed to hate people? What, was I too specific? No, hold on. <laughs> I wasn't clutching my pearls. No, like I hate people. You hate people. I'm I'm okay with this. <laughs> like, you, you want to take shots at the, you know, oh, the comic book community deserves to be hurt by Hollywood. Sure, I don't care. <laughs> okay, I'm just checking. Because like, 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 oh, he's attacking the trailer react people. Like, yeah, fuck them. <laughs> fuck the whole medium. And fuck YouTube while I'm at it. But, you know... That's just me. I fuck Mark. Fuck Mark Rattler. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
So anyone watching this on YouTube, please do like, comment, and subscribe for more insightful, <laughs> for more insightful commentary and witty diatribes. <laughs> Last thing, and then we gotta move this on and, and, cl and close up shop. Uh, this weekend will not be a number one, a repeat for Candyman. Candyman no. will not be the number one movie in America. It'll be Shang-Chi. That's, yeah. I think, fairly obvious. Uh, and other wide releases, there's nothing this weekend. But if you like some limited release movies, we've got um, Mogul Mowgli. We've got Fayadaya. We've got We Need to Do Something, which is actually on the list of things I was tracking from IFC Films. That's a horror movie, I believe. Uh, it says it right there. Um from Vertical Entertainment, we got Saving Paradise, Wild Indian, which is a thriller from also Vertical, and then Tango Shalom. Um, Shang-Chi might repeat depending on word of mouth. It's hard to say. Uh, the big thing, I think the big thing the week after is going to be Malignant, which is day and date and a horror movie and James Wan. I can't see that being the number one movie in America. I think the day and date thing hurts it more. James Wan has a great track record, especially in the horror genre. And as we've seen, a horror movie can take the number one spot. The question is, is this going to be the one to do it? Yeah, I've seen the trailer for this. I mean, like, I don't mind talking about it with you. This is a thing to talk about. And I like James Wan. So I think there's value in talking about this movie as terms of like, what are we talking about this week? But I, I don't see this one drawing a crowd. Yeah, I'm curious what might, what else, what's the other wide thing that might be able to get? I mean, some of this Nothing. is also. I think nothing for the week of September 10th. Yeah, it almost feels like they're all giving Shang-Chi a chance to repeat at number one. Right. And then uh, the S September 17th is a bit is, is weird, to say the least, because the your wide release here is something called Cop Shop with Frank Grillo. Which I um, only saw a trailer for ahead of this movie. Yeah, I, I don't even think I saw that much or or just I don't remember it. But in um in Day and Date, and I guess limited release is Cry Macho, which... I thought was just strictly going to be HBO Max, but apparently that's also being released in theaters. Um, and the eyes of Tammy Faye, which I'm going to go see with my wife, just not this weekend. And I think people will go see it, but it's you know it's a it's a limited release searchlight picture. Um, it, it I think that you know people who want to kind of laugh at evangelicals will go and see this and have a good time with it, but I can't imagine it's going to have wide appeal. So Chang so Shang Chi, depending on again word of mouth, might three peat just because it's got no competition I of any real value. I genuinely wonder how many people looked at Shang-Chi's coming out and got out of the way when it turns out they didn't need to. <laughs> um, the 24th is nothing. The The wide release is Dear Evan Hansen. I, that might be the number one movie of that weekend just because nothing else is out there, but I don't know. Really I don't even know it. what that is. Yeah, no, I've seen the trailer. I've seen the trailer for it. I, I, uh, I haven't. <laughs> and then um, October 1st, this is not accurate anymore because Hotel Transylvania has abandoned its, its theatrical slot and it's and it's date um day and date is the many saints of newark and then the adams so, family so the adams family is going to win that weekend probably. probably it's it's wide release it's it's a sequel it's a cartoon it's not day and date anywhere so yeah i would imagine i would imagine um candy again it's run at the number one spot is over it's going to be beat by shang chi and then shang chi has the entire month of september to to beat out everything and will probably three-peat going into October where it gets beat by the Adams family. And then, and then it's a race between, you know, and then it's, uh, I think it's bond. Okay, let me go up another month. Um, I believe it's, it's bond. And then I hate the people at Sony. Um, if it's a three way, tell, <laughs> tell us how you really feel, Mark, a fucking three way dance between Halloween, the last duel and venom, because that's unnecessary. 
Can I just then, say, I saw the trailer for The Last Duel and I wanted to throw something. And then the 22nd is Dune. That'll be the number one movie of that weekend. It'll have, I think, I, I think people will go see Jackass, but it won't win the weekend. Um, and then we close up October with uh, Antlers and Last Night in Soho. Um, I think one of those will win its weekend. It's hard to say which one by that point. Maybe Dune will, will, will have a second week in the number one spot. And then Eternals comes out. So that's that's where we're yeah, going with but money. No one dude, if Shang-Chi does poorly, mm-hmm. if how badly is Eternals gonna do? I'm not having that discussion with no, you. No, 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 no. Uh, set aside Bailey trolling. I'm asking good faith question. Mm-hmm. Okay. If Shang-Chi does poorly, yeah. Th- that's a big if, and I'm happy to have that I'm happy to let, let me, that be the let me ask you. Let me ask you the same let me ask you the same question, but ask it differently. How much of an appetite do you think mainstream America has for Asians in prominent hero positions versus white, black, and Hispanic people? Because that's the question. That's not the question. That's it part is the, of the... No, no, it no, is no. the question. No, 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 because no, no. the Eternals has a beautiful array of people in their cast that people are willing to accept in hero form. Do we accept? A, do we accept? Big time Asian heroes, by and large, we didn't with Snake Eyes. Hold on, that's not a fair comparison. <laughs> it might not be, but that, but that, might, c- looking back at the year twenty twenty one when it's all over, Snake Eyes might be the canary in the coal mine if Shang Chi also does poorly, because in both cases you have a prominent male Asian actor in the hero, and this country hates people. From, from you know, and only accepts them in certain stereotypical ways. And so, when you present, if you present Shang Chi on the level of Iron Man and Captain America, does white America turn and look at you and say, "Fuck the fuck right off"? No, I do not accept Asian Captain America. I do not accept Asian Iron Man. He can be Asian War Machine. He can be Asian ugh, other member of Avenger. I who's failing me at this time um rocket raccoon but no i do not accept major forefront america you know american hero as an asian male i do not and i'm not saying i mark rattledge i'm now speaking for terrible white america okay let me my counter to that is that this is going to hinge on if that's if that's what you're going to hang your hat on about this argument okay mm-hmm. then it's down to the lead actor because the guy from Crazy Rich Asians that only women saw. Hang on and let me finish my point. <laughs> okay. America has no problem with Asian men in leading action roles. Please don't make that face at me. You really want to try and tell me that Jackie Chan was not a major star in America? It, that's very compartmentalized. I'm, I'm not saying there's not Asian men who maybe got the shaft along the way. Okay. I'm happy to stipulate. I'm saying it's going to come down to him because they're the American public by and large is willing to accept people in those roles. Hang on. I got to correct. Hang on. I I apologize. I'm going to let you finish. He was not in crazy rich Asians. Please continue. I was going to say, I don't think that was the same guy. I don't know what I was thinking about or who or who it doesn't matter. No, no, move on. I I was wrong and I'm sorry. Go ahead. I the point is they will 
if it's the right guy in the right like this is this is all about i mean the same is true of captain america you couldn't put just anybody in that role you might have been able to cast a wider there might have been a wider range of acceptable possibilities but you needed the right guy you needed the right guy to be iron man who if you cast someone other than robert downey jr as tony stark way back in 2008 or whatever Mm -hmm. does this thing even get off the ground I mean, look, I, I, I get your counter argument that this guy could win people over who might not be. I, I, I guess, and this will be the last thing we have to say because we're, we're now at two hours. Yeah. And we still have the critical review, which is going to be its own. Ugh. Um, <laughs> I think what I'm trying to say is there's always the chance that an actor, despite prejudices, will win people over and people will accept them. They certainly did with Chadwick Boseman and Black Panther. They're a great example of... Yeah. We were, you know, a country willing to accept a, you know, a black Superman and they got a black Superman and the guy doing it is so awesome. People were like, yes, here's a billion dollars. We love you. We're sorry. You know, great. Um, there's always that chance. But I still think in in a lot of ways, especially with recent current events, the way that they've transpired, we're still the country smacking Toyota cars with bats. And we're not willing to accept the guy from any part of the world where that part of the world drove us to hit cars with bats. Yeah, I mean, look, it, again, if your point is that there's always going to be shitheads. Well, I, how, I think the point that I'm trying to make is how many more shitheads than not shitheads are out yeah, there. You, you and, and that's going to affect this movie's bottom line. Yeah, I, that I will agree with. Like you and I have a different worldview about the number of terrible, about like the ratio of terrible people to not terrible people and ha- where they fall on the scale of terribleness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also bring that up because while Marvel has a lot of, you know, goodwill with the public. Had. I'd still say has, but it's slipping. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I, I, th- I think that's what I was saying. It was just like they had enormous goodwill. They yeah. have less goodwill they than have, they had before. But they have a lot. They're trending in the wrong direction. Correct. If Shang-Chi continues that trend, I don't think there's anything in the Eternals that's going to cause a rebound. Now, I might be wrong about that, mm-hmm. but... My read on that is Eternals is such a weird property at its core mm-hmm. that no one knows about. Now, that's not a now, here, again. Here, hang on. Hang on. Not, Selma Hayek, Angelina Jolie. There are other pretty wonderful people in this cast. There are some people that look like the right kind of people you want to see in superhero movies, by and large, by the terrible people. I, again, I think I think there's a lot of misconceptions about Eternals versus Shang-Chi. And I will now shut up. I'll look, they went out of their way to cast big names and that you want to know how little faith they have in Eternals. <laughs> they, they spent the money on Selma Hayek and Angelina Jolie. Right. But they're draws. Well, Angelina Jolie definitely is people go, go see an Angelina Jolie movie. She might be one of like, you and I have had this, dis- hang on. You and I have had this discussion many times. Mm-hmm. The era of a movie star as a draw is basically dead. Well, no, yeah. No, no, no. I'm saying she's a draw in the right role with the right, you know, accoutrements. And so the point there is you've got a property that's going to be very esoteric to begin with. It's sure. it's dealing with the cosmic part of the universe. And that's just a little bit out there for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. 
you're dealing with a property that no one knows about. You're dealing mm-hmm. with a damaged overall brand, not dead, but trending down. Right. And it's an ensemble cast, which is always a little bit tri- not not a death sentence, just trickier to deal with. Sure. And you're kind of hinging the saleability of this thing on one again Marvel's cachet, the existence of attractive people on screen, and a director who just won an Oscar for Sad Piano the movie. <laughs> that is not, and the thing's not going to get released in China. But, but a football in the crotch had a football in the crotch. Yeah, like I mean, look, I'm not here to. That's not me bashing Nomad Land. It's just, it is what it is, right? Right. Yep. And that just, I think if Shang-Chi doesn't get a bit of, doesn't help rebound things after Black Widow and, you know, the Disney Plus glut of stuff. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm rooting for Shang-Chi. My kids, I already have tickets. My kids are very excited about it. They've been excited about it all summer. I, I'm just putting out there that the world's full of shitty people who might not accept Asian Captain America. Well, and if he were Asian Captain America, we might have a problem. That's not actually what Shang-Chi is, but... I am being way... I know. Way deconstructionist about this. All right, look, we're moving look, on. I mean, look, people didn't want the, the Korean totally awesome Hulk either, and thankfully that died a horrible death. And it didn't get made into a movie. I'm really not sure what your point is. Yeah, that, it, <laughs> that it exists. It's a thing that was tried. And Mark, you went, you're, you're a little bit behind here because I have to ask you this before we move on. Okay. What do you think about the music from Candyman? Because frankly, oh god, <laughs> because frankly, I <laughs> I thought it was mostly I thought it was mostly good, even though it didn't it didn't like really leave an impression. We're not talking, you know, all time great horror scores, but I thought it was suitably creepy when it needed to be creepy. Uh, I think it was lacking in sort of maybe some contemporary music that might have added to the aesthetic, and you can find yeah. a lot of that. Contemporary music on AmazonMusic.com. Good call, Robert Winfrey. <laughs> well, you know we're really into a conversation when I forget all the sponsors that I'm supposed yep. to be doing. Um, AmazonMusic.com, to, to, to wrap this up shortly, uh, AmazonMusic.com is giving away a free 30 days of the Amazon Music service. Go ahead and click the link in our description of this podcast at getamazonmusic.com slash W2M network. That's getamazonmusic.com slash W2M network for a free trial of Amazon Music Unlimited. Uh, make sure you complete the sign up process to do that. And if you like the service, you keep it and you pay the monthly fee like you would do with Spotify or Apple Music. If you don't, you cancel. No fuss, no must, no contracts, no pains in the butt. All right. And with that oh, said, yeah. if you want to hear the aforementioned 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. <laughs> It's on Amazon Music. It, it is absolutely on Amazon Music. It's a wonderful service. All right. Play that funky music, white boy. <laughs> Well, as you can see, uh, the critics mostly loved it. It had an 85% tomato meter reading, and uh, the audience liked it, not not as much as the mm. critics, which I That's... think is about accurate. 
I mean, that's accurate, but that's that's a bit. If you're looking at this movie and you know what do you want to hang your hat on, the audience score being 10, 11 points lower than the critical score is not a good thing. The critical consensus says, "Yay, black people, boo cops." No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> CM Punk. C- sorry. Uh, the critical consensus says Candyman takes an incisive visually thrilling approach to deepening the franchise's mythology and terrifying audiences along the way. The audience says, hang on, hang on. Just before we, before you move on to the audience score, I I need this question answered. Okay. Anyone out there, if you're on YouTube, comment in the comment below, if this movie scared you or not, if you're on any of the other purely auditory ones, tweet Mark. I need to know how many people were genuinely scared by this movie because I don't know. I didn't find, there's some gruesome kills, but I didn't, I'm with you. Like this didn't, the scares from this didn't really settle and certainly didn't linger once I walked out of the door. No, I did. This one did not give me nightmares when I got home and crawled in the bed with my wife. Um, audience says the 2021 Candyman may not be as scary as the original. Correct. But it expands the story in ways the fans of the franchise should enjoy. How dare you tell me what I should or shouldn't do. All righty. You so are not the supreme arbiter of All right. enjoyment. So we'll read the fresh ones because I'm sure those will be hilarious. Um, Zara Falan of Flavor Mag. DaCosta on the whole less has delivered. Sorry. DaCosta on the whole has delivered a confectionery delight of importance and a fitting way to carry this legend forward, giving another intelligent voice to the oppressed while putting in respect for those that have come before. Wow. You uh, you just trying to get invited to parties there, aren't you? <laughs> Hang on. If your review of this movie is boy, it sure is nice to see black people making movies. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) Andrea Chase of Killer Movie Reviews. Four out of five. The tension of a serial killer on the loose, particularly of the supernatural variety, is juxtaposed with tension people of color feel while negotiating a white world. Which had the conclusion of your movie dealt with that in any coherent way, I would agree with you, but it doesn't. Let me me the movie essentially like does thing, 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 and then at the end goes, and that's why the Golden Girls got canceled. Not enough sex, and you're like, wait, that wasn't what we were talking about at all. Let me ask another question about this, and I absolutely mean this in all sincerity. Mm -hmm. What was there about the daily lives of black people navigating a white world that really came that really came across here? The, the like, white person didn't one hundred percent accept his artwork because he's black, and that was all the reasons she needed. Yeah, like I mean it. <laughs> like that's it. The rest of this, there is no. That's not used as part of the aesthetic or as part of the atmosphere to try and generate tension. Is he's the the lone black rebel artist? trying to navigate the white world of you know, no like that <laughs> that big dinner they have you know with the uh, the you know the fancy di- the fancy you know art critic or gallery owner from New York like he's white came across as very gay they never confirmed that but that's the affect he gave off everyone else at that table is some form of a person of color all right this was not the black experience navigating a white world that is not at all what this film showed at all um sarah mars of laney gossip the ideas are there the continuity of violence art and commercialism and exploitation gentrification and haunting but it doesn't go anywhere oh that's true 
I I more or less agree with that. Abby Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein, assignment X. Artful in every sense of the word, playing with imaginary, sorry, playing with imagery that might have come straight from Clive Barker. I read that one because I wanted your opinion on whether you think Clive Barker would have come up with this or not. Well, we're talking just about the imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, not, some places, yes, but on the whole, not quite so much. Anne Brody of what she said, beautifully directed by Nia DaCosta with an equally beautiful pulse pounding score. Candyman eh. set standard for postmodern horror. What about this is postmodern? Please tell me. <laughs> I, I, I Smart I, people like to throw the term postmodern out there. Yeah, they also like to throw you might as well have been writing for the New Yorker. All you needed was nihilistic tagged in there somewhere, you <laughs> freaking hack. <laughs> I mean that in all sincerity. You want to say this is postmodern horror? Explain to me how the postmodern philosophies that have, uh, relate to this movie. I, I I almost demand that you explain that sentence. Before we conclude this bit, let me just remind people that these reviews could have been written with Grammarly. Boy, and I wish they were. <laughs> Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistakes for you on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly everywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. That's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. All righty. Uh, finishing up with this bit here. I hate that I agree with the salon critic. <laughs> Oh, okay. I'll, I'll just read it to you for you. Melanie McFarland of salon.com top critic. It's actually a, this was a splat. Uh, you should feel something that the overwhelming sensation provoked by Nia DaCosta's Candyman is numbness. Then is a problem. I hate that. I agree with you, but you are correct. Um, Kathleen Woods, cup of soul who's on rotten tomato and we're not Candyman is scary and fun. Is something my children would have said they're in elementary school. How, how, <laughs> just how is that person featured on Rotten Tomatoes? How is that line of what she wrote? Surely there had to be something more coherent and adult written in what she no, wrote. No, no, no. It was a tweet. Like that, that, <laughs> oh, hold on. For the record, I mentioned this before, but I'm going to say it. We are. Tr we would like to be featured on Rotten Tomatoes here in Damn You Hollywood. We have a bunch of the criteria met. One of the things that we need, though, is a bigger subscriber base on Twitter. On Twitter on youtube so if you're listening to this if you would please subscribe or if you're listening to this in the audio only format i if you're listening to this via apple podcast and you have an itunes account please give us a rating this is another thing that the peep the brain trust in charge of rotten tomatoes the gatekeepers of whatever this sack of shit is <laughs> have standards apparently these days <laughs> And one of the things that we need is uh, those metrics up to demonstrate that we have a large enough listener base to justify us being included, along with the intellectual galaxy brain that is Candyman is scary and fun. So if you would please, that would help us out tremendously. Thank you much. Tom Schoen of Sunday Times UK. DaCosta keeps her balance with a neat corkscrewing structure and elliptical scenes of slaughter that leave just enough to the imagination. A rather sickly sweet treat. You just threw that last line in as the worst kind of fan service. Get bent. <laughs> uh, let's find a good one here. Kerry O'Shea of Warped Perspective. Oh, this ought to be good. 
The film is far more about acrimony than allegory, and it makes for a crude element of Candyman as Avenger, which detracts from Candyman's better qualities. Huh. Oh, okay. This person gave a C minus to the movie, which apparently qualifies as a fresh review in their scale, I guess. Because I actually agree with a lot of that. Yeah, I was gonna say like that. That didn't go nearly as well as I wanted it to. Uh, oh shit! I <laughs> you did go back. I gotta go uh, back. <laughs> we have to. I saw that. <laughs> All right, Kevin Carr, a fat guy at the movies. Woo! There's a lot buried in this movie. It has a lot to say, but it also works as a chilling, creepy horror movie. See, Kevin Carr is the kind of guy that makes me not want to work with other podcasters anymore. Like, he has such like a flat... Uh, what's the, the opposite of deep? Shallow. It's just a flat, shallow perspective on movies. He's like... He's just a dude reacting viscerally with his most base emotions to things with no perspective, no insight, on, no act of deconstruction. Uh, go and back. It's like, uh, okay. And it's just like, and that is so much of what like YouTube and, and podcast movie reviews are. I fucking hate it. And when people are like, you would be more popular if you would interact with more people doing movie reviews. No. I talked to Robert because I like him and he, and even if we disagree, we have different, you know, we have interesting perspectives. I don't want to talk to these people. Meh. Okay. So hang on. Scroll down again. I, I, there was in addition to just above fat guy at the movies, there was okay. one of our, there was one of our favorites. It's up there. They just live there for a second. Uh, why did you give that a fresh review then, sir? Of Look, I, one of the, <laughs> You, this people aren't watching the people who are listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang on. Here, please so, be more specific. One of the people that we mock relentlessly are <laughs> the people who write for who do these for NPR because NPR is a failed, terrible publication or you know, group of people. And this one is Tom Coghall from Cog Film Cogshell. Thank you. I your resolution is a little bit low for me from Film Week, uh, KPCC, NPR, Los Angeles. And I've raked this guy over the coals on occasion. Uh, and his review is, this is not as good as the original film. Thank you, sir. That is correct. If you're more than 30 years old and remember the original, go ahead and give it a shot, but it's really not the same. Not exactly a ringing endorsement, and I'm curious why he arrived at Fresh overall. Uh, Norman Wilner of Now Toronto. The new Candyman reminds us why the character still haunts us. Does it? Does it really? <laughs> Don't tell you don't speak for me. Um, it reminds me of nothing. <laughs> uh, Todd Jorgensen of Cinemalog infusing the 1992 film with a fresh sociocultural perspective. The cost oh, has crafted God, a you moron has crafted a stylish and subversive reimagining with some amusing tweaks to the genre tropes. Okay, let, let, hang on. What about this is subversive? I mean, I, you, this is another thing that people throw around as though it. Because they don't actually want to be, dis they don't actually want to engender discussion. It's subversive. How? You tell right. me, buddy. Which tropes does that subvert? How does this subvert expectations? Oh, let yeah. me guess. Let me, let me guess. Your response is, well, it deals with this part of the zeitgeist. You can't even. You probably don't even know what the zeitgeist is. You. I'm sure what this is, is is a remark of how brave it was that the, the final thing is them killing a slew of cops, and it's like. In this day and age, with everything going on right now, that's the popular perspective. Really that's is. not that's that's not like a, a going against the grain up the down staircase cultural take. 
there's an entire movement based around defund the police. You're you're literally taking the perspective of like 50% of the people, you know, who might want to see this thing. Like it's not you're not subverting anything. Yeah, not in the slightest. You this is not brave in any way. Doug Walker, speaking of not brave, of Channel Awesome, could benefit could benefit more from showing you what's haunting as opposed to telling you what's haunting, but cleverly continues the eerie lore of the original. You mo- okay? I've I've discovered this about some of these people. Mm. Anytime a movie or a franchise digs into the lore that's digs into the lore of the world, anyone who has ever tried to write something professionally. And I mean that like fiction. As soon as someone engages with the deeper world, they go, oh, someone cares about all this tedious groundwork that I went into building my fictional world and I must praise it because it does so. No, get bent. I have a a guy I went to high school with as a professional uh, editor. He is fond of telling people who like writing. However you choose to engage with your story the audience experiences it at the inverse. When you write something, the first things you consider are setting, plot, character. You, know, you, you try to build something logically. And the last thing the, the writer considers is the grammar and spelling and punctuation and everything, because this should be somewhat automatic. It's the last thing you think about. Well, that so if you reverse that, that is how the audience interacts with your piece of medium. The first thing they see and have to consider is the writing, the spelling, the gra- The last thing they care about is your lore, your world, quote unquote. And it's painfully obvious anytime someone who has tried to write something like that winds up reviewing something that interacts with you know, a, the deeper lore of a world because I wrote something like this, and if this thing can engage with it, then that validates my wasted effort. Sean Collier of Pittsburgh Magazine, a whirlwind of terror and trauma. Look, this movie was a lot of things, and many of them good. Whirlwind would not be one of them. Unless you, unless that is purely a reference to the 90-minute runtime, uh, <laughs> then no. Stephanie Zasharek, desperately trying to be invited to parties of Time Magazine, top critic. Candyman is a work held together by thoughtful choices, and it it has a lot to say. Please like me. Okay. I, I need to say this. It's okay to say that a movie has a lot to say or that a movie has nothing to say. Some movies say nothing. Like 90% of Michael Bay films. They don't say anything. <laughs> and I, I don't say that to be dismissive of people who enjoy those movies. Part of the reason they enjoy them is because they're giant nothings. Right? You like Michael Bay movies, Mark. I or do. I I mean, is that is that un, is that an unfair thing to observe? It is not. But if you're if part of what you your criticism, it, your critical response is it has a lot to say, you then have to follow that up. Does it say it effectively? Does it say it intelligently? Is it consistent in what it says? This is an excuse for the sh- for the slipshod scattershot writing. Well, it has a lot to say. So, of course, it's going to talk about police brutality and gentrification and the exploitation of the black artists by the white consumer and the, and you know, the rent control. No, having a lot to say is not an excuse for a lack of narrative cohesion. That's poor criticism. That's poor writing and excusing it is poor criticism. All right. Last one. And then we're going to be done with this. Jeff York, the establishing shot. Candyman is virtually George Floyd here. 
Oh, <laughs> get back. <laughs> so, yeah, I always find the one that Just, calls you to have a stroke. I would piss on you, sir. I'm not even done yet. I know. <laughs> Candyman is virtually George Floyd here. A victim who becomes the face of centuries of white abuse against the black community. Making him more of a symbol, however, robs this version of a clearer, more definitive boogeyman character. Okay. One, the ending bit of that is actually true. Second, the character that we follow here, Sherman, is actually innocent, whereas Floyd wasn't. Like, he shouldn't have been killed. I'm not advocating for, you know, extrajudicial executions like that, to the extent that you want to call it an execution. Like, he shouldn't have died in police custody, given everything that happened. Like, straight up, should not have. 100%. He was a person of interest and a detainee for a reason. <laughs> Whereas Sherwin here was a victim of bad, bad circumstance and a much more antiquated concept about policing that is... You can say that our current method of policing is still needs refining and reforming, and I don't disagree with you. I just have to say it again. If you think it's the same as it was in the 70s, you're too young to have lived through the 70s. All right, folks. At almost two and a half hours, I feel like well, this is why we broke this review up into yeah. two parts. One of a general discussion and one of Robert and I doing our usual deep dive analysis. We had a lot to say. I mean, Robert and I could probably talk three hours about just about anything. And I, I usually cut it earlier than this. But I feel like we both had a lot to say here in the movie engendered a long form discussion. So we hope you enjoyed that discussion. Robert, do you feel like you do you are you now secretly in the back of your mind going? He told me not to say anything in the review tonight. Just be Tony Schiavone. But fuck that guy. I got more to say. Or are you good now? Or have you exhaled? Uh, for the most part, again, some out. Some of what I might say in the roundtable discussion will be brought on by what is discussed by the other participants, but I'm sure. happy. I'm happy to let this be ninety-five percent of my review of the film. Okay. Again, if there's something else that strikes me or that comes up in conversation, or if I remember what you, because I didn't actually remember what you you were in the middle of something and it triggered something that I wanted to say, and then by the time you finished it, it I not not you were not long-winded. It just it was a fleeting thing mm. that I went wait. And then you finished, and I went, oh, what was that? Like, I, I just had one of those moments. So yeah, no, if, somebody, if, maybe, if but... somebody says something pants on head nanners, and you're like, no, no, sir, this, 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 this wasn't about, this wasn't a euphemism for the use of fossil fuels um, <laughs> or something like that. Okay, sure, respond. But generally, you know, but like I said, I think this was, this was needed for me and you, and that yeah. will be for them, and that is the way we're doing this. Um, in the well, meantime, I'm, I'm also just... He said, there are certain conversations that not only need to be had between a smaller number of people, but mm -hmm. between people with the right kind of rapport and understanding. Like sure. you, you and I talking about some of the issues that this movie raises is not the same as like you and Alexis or me and Alexis or me and Jason. Like there's, nope. and, that, and that's not a negative on any of those people or any of those combinations. They all produce you know, great content. I like all those people. I like podcasting with them. I, that's not... At all, me going screw those guys. I can only talk with you. No, I, but any I, stretch of the <clears throat> but I mean, look, at two and a half hours, two people produced that much amount yeah. of conversation, and only some of it was about how Chang Chi is going to bomb. So, well, uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my so no, I but I think, uh, but but you know, it's funny because as much as we had problems with the movie, I think it's interesting that it's going to not it, it's engendering so much conversation. And just within our little group of people, 
you know, what it will end up being three to four hours worth of discussion. So yay for Nia DaCosta and Jordan Peele and everyone that worked on this. All right. With that said, um, delay this long enough. So yes, tonight there'll be an audio only round table with the rest of the gang tomorrow. Uh, right now, um, up on the site is, uh, Jesse Starcher and Chris Armstrong reviewing Shang-Chi by, uh, Gene Lun Yang, uh, volume one brothers and sisters from Marvel comics. And that's to coincide with the upcoming Shang-Chi movie that we discussed. Uh, Robert and I did alternative commentary for Jake Paul versus Tyrone Woodley. We that's did. up on the site. Tomorrow is our and long I'll, road trip. I just need to briefly say. Yeah. I did get to yell about the stupidity of that decision. Mm -hmm. I, like uh, you and I mentioned this, like we recorded that and the little graphic that came up at the end said unanimous decision in favor of Jake Paul. And we both went, that's how we scored it. That makes sense. Good night, everybody. And then three minutes later realized because we, we can't actually listen to that. We have to listen to each other. Three minutes later, realized, oh, that was split. Oh, <laughs> some moron gave Tyron Woodley every round after the third. Boxing is fundamentally broken. What the hell? And couldn't actually. And it was too late to right. have that on the podcast. So listen to Robert talk about it on his podcast. I do, um, <clears throat> tomorrow will be our uh, re-airing of the Long Road to Ruin for the entire Iron Man trilogy, not just three. Myself, um, after a long hiatus, about a month long, myself, Jesse Starcher, and probably Robert Cooper are back on the Metal Hammer of Doom. Uh, we'll be talking D. Snyder, Leave a Scar. Um, myself and Alexis Haina will review the second half of season one that just dropped of The Wonderful World of Mickey Mouse, which you, my kids and I really enjoyed. And then Saturday is our trivia show that we did on toys. It was myself, uh, the guys from Kapow, and Dueling Ogres, and Evan Bevins. Um, we sang, we danced, we laughed, we cried, we hurled. It was a grand, it was a grand time. Jesse did a hell of a job with the toys um, trivia, and we uh, we hope you'll listen to it. So that's it. That's all I got before this goes three hours. So please, 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 do your plugs very quickly. Uh, we mentioned it briefly just a minute ago, but I host the four one one Ground and Pound MMA podcast, uh, your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I recorded that immediately after we got done with the Jake Paul Tyron Woodley fight. So I actually opened discussing that fight and the scoring and get to decompress from that. It's also a review of last of uh, Saturday's UFC on ESPN 40. Yeah, it was 40. Uh, headlined by Edson Barboza and Giga Chikadze. Uh, so you can get my full thoughts on that. And a preview of this Saturday's UFC on ESPN plus 49, which is a deeply uninspired card, but I preview it nonetheless because I'm a professional. Uh, later today, I'll be doing the roundtable thing with myself, Alexis Haina, Jason Teasley, James Greco, and Dorian Price. So be on the lookout for that. If you didn't get enough of our discussion of Candyman, there will be more. Uh, I would encourage you to check that out. Uh, I cover professional wrestling over at 411mania.com as well as MMA. Uh, that's where I do that. So you can find my reports for UFC events in the MMA zone. Mondays, I cover AEW Dark Elevation. Wednesdays, MLW, if they release anything. And Fridays, WWE SmackDown. So you can find my full report for the latest uh, Elevation episode. And this coming week, uh, this coming Friday, I'll be over there talking about whatever the WWE does on Friday. So come by if you're interested in any of that and say hello. I appreciate it. Please, as always, remember to like, comment, subscribe, rate, review. Tell a friend, tell an enemy, and tell a stranger. We appreciate all the support that you guys give us. We had a pretty decent August. Not quite great, but 
not the worst either. So we're looking to make September even better. So with a lot of stuff coming, a lot of content for you guys. So uh, stay up to date. You can follow Mark on Twitter. His Twitter is on the screen here on YouTube. It is at Mark Radulich. And you can like the Radulich and Broadcasting Network Facebook page to stay up to date with the ever-shifting schedule. <laughs> be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>